0: Now and then, we stumble across a story that is so unusual, we have difficulty categorizing it. Tonight's story is just such a legend. We owe our discovery of it to a longtime friend of the show, and of course, ours personally, television and screenwriter Richard Haddam. Tonight, you'll hear how this tale drifted into our lives, but suffice to say that it's not clear what kind of label one should apply to it. Ghost story? Poltergeist? science fiction. After all, it has elements of the Bell Witch, mixed with Skinwalker Ranch, and oddly, some things in common with Star Trek. Don't be too quick to dismiss it, because the circumstances surrounding it are very compelling. They appear to defy rational explanation. This legend is relatively contemporary, too. Everyone who's ever worked on a computer will be able to relate to some component of it as this story centers around one an old 64-bit machine made in the UK that an unsuspecting teacher checked out from his school so a friend could use the word processor for something she was working on. It turns out, this computer had a secret, and when it was left alone in the kitchen of his several hundred-year-old home, Meadowview Cottage, the text documents on it would fill up with strange words and messages. Messages that would have the recipient, Ken Webster believing that they were being sent from 400 years in the past to his home in late 1984 and early 85. This computer had no fixed internal hard drive, only RAM or temporary memory that would be lost whenever one turned it off. There was no internet, at least not as we know it today, nor any way to connect to it even if there had been. Modems belonged to the military and blue chip corporations not teachers from small villages in the British countryside. There were numerous experiments to isolate the computer and house from any source of a hoax or outside influence. It turns out the messages from the past, if that's where they originated, would arrive pretty regularly for quite some time. Ken Webster, the teacher and author in question, returned the computer to his school regularly and then would check one out again from a pool of several computers. He likely never even had the same machine twice in a row. Yet, the messages persisted. Eventually, Ken, his girlfriend Deb, and their mutual friend Peter, developed a relatively sophisticated and somewhat emotionally intimate relationship with the man known as Lucas at the other end of the line. The parties communicating exchanged information. Questions were asked and answered. Experts tried to understand just what was going on, if anything at all and attempted to determine whether or not this was all just a hoax. They were unsuccessful. The man from the 1500s on the other end of the line, Lucas, was initially convinced that the devil had brought him the box he was using to talk to Ken, Deb, and Peter. Then he thought that he was alive, and that Ken, Deb, and Peter must be ghosts, or spirits. How odd to be accused by a ghost of being a ghost yourself welcome back to astonishing legends i'm scott philbrook and this is forest burgess what a prospect either he was dead and we were alive or he was alive and we were more than 400 years from the dates of our conceptions Ken Webster from page 46 of his book, The Vertical Plane, published 1989 by Grafton Books. Join us and our
1: special guest Richard Haddam tonight for part one of our two-part series on one of the most intriguing books we've ever
0: read, The Vertical Plane. And we're back! What year is it?
1: Oh, that's actually one of my favorite lines from the original (laughs) Jumanji, and Robin Williams
0: delivered it. Uh,
1: Personally, I'm uh, pretty sure we're in 2021 here, but after reading uh, The Vertical Plane, I have more questions about time than ever before.
0: (laughs) Oh, yeah. Well, you know, that line always goes great with any time travel flick. Time bandits, 12 monkeys, Oh yeah, me uh, the (gasps) next morning after waking up from a late night recording session. Oh, yeah. I knew that The Vertical Plane dealt with I guess like an acetate, a one-time period over another. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. That's a good way of putting it. But I honestly wasn't prepared for how weird and mind-blowing this story was going to get. Oh, yeah. It's a doozy. Yeah. Speaking of punching a hole through the veil to the other side, on a very serious note, we get emails about anything and everything you can imagine. But, and we're not joking here, <laughs> One subject we get emailed about most frequently are listeners describing having some sort of unwanted spirit activity either at their home or following them around and asking what can they do about it because they're at their wit's end and they're tired of being either mildly annoyed to downright terrified sometimes for years or decades. And of course, it's not something you ask your friends, family or coworkers about for the obvious reasons. So, they ask us, what can they do? Where can they turn? And we're by no means experts on the subject, but there is one resource we do know about and tend to trust because she was effective in helping out our friends with their serious situation as we covered it in our Sludge Entity episodes. A situation that's generally been described in the field as spirit oppression or spirit harassment, with the solution being called by some as spirit remediation, or as she would call it, spirit correction or energy correction. And her name is Lori West, and her service is called Lone Star Medium. And she was part of the group working with James Sangster and Houston Ghost Research to deal with the attachment to our friend's son, Jack, if you remember that. But Lori West also has other psychic medium services she can provide other than how to deal with unwanted paranormal activity. She also specializes in things like a life path report if you're curious about your career or relationships for yourself or loved ones, or if you're desperate to hear from a departed loved one, or if you have health issues, you can get a health and wellness reading. If you're curious about a significant dream, she does dream interpretation, or if you simply want someone to listen to you reach out to her and see if she can help. So you can check her out at her website, lonestarmedium.com, and read all about her, read her blog, and see if she's right for you. And then send her a message through the contact page on her website. And yeah, this might be a controversial subject or service for us to discuss here in The Housekeeping. But we're not kidding when we say we routinely get emails asking about solutions or guidance with problems like these. And since Lori not only helped out our friends... She seems to have helped out listeners we've sent to her and has been effective with our personal readings. And of course, there are no guarantees with something like this, but we think there's no harm in checking her out to see if she can help you. So once again, that's LoneStarMedium.com.
1: Uh yeah, she really is great. I've enjoyed all the interactions I've had with her so far. So and a very kind person as well. It's mm-hmm. fascinating to me that stuff. Well yeah. uh also those of you that follow us on social media probably saw some pictures I shared
0: of a FedEx driver wearing one of our shirts. <laughs> well, yeah, somebody's gotta deliver our stuff to our terrific listeners because it ain't elves. Yeah, so this guy, Eric Vess, and it's the strangest
1: thing. He was on his route in what we commonly refer to as the creepiest and strangest state in the US, Ohio. Mm-hmm. And, and he decided mm. to strike up a conversation with one of his regular customers, asking him what exactly it was that he did. I suppose he had noticed some silk screening equipment or perhaps wondered what all the outgoing packages he would pick up were. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So he asked this guy, whose name is Craig, "Uh, what do you do here? Or something similar, I'm sure. And Craig says, well, I handle merch for some folks. He he does graphic design. He's an artist. He screen prints things, uh, does fulfillment. And I guess at some point he says, you know, I have a few clients, including this podcast, Astonishing Legends, at which point Eric is like, I listen to that show. I've been listening for years. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So it turns out Eric's been riding around listening to Astonishing Legends while unknowingly hauling Astonishing Legends merchandise out to all of you listeners who have bought stuff from our online store. Pretty cool. Eric, man, if you're listening right now, and I know you probably are, thanks so much for being an unknown cog in the Astonishing Machine. (laughs)
2: Mm -hmm. It's good
1: to know our merch is in good hands
0: when it's on its way to listeners around the world. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Eric. What a cool story. Okay, let's get into this bizarre legend and also get Rich Adam back in a blanket for Tiana.
1: Rich, it has been too long. We're so glad to have you back. And I can't remember what year it was. What year was the Christmas basket with this vertical plane, the book in it? How many years ago was that now?
2: It's coming up on three. It was Christmas of 2018. Okay. You were still in town. It was when we were doing the uh, near-death experience episode. Okay. It was that, that same season.
1: Yes. Yes. Wow. Well, and as we've said on the show for people that might've missed it or missed one of of Rich's last appearances, um, this book that you gave us, we joked about this recently. What did you, I don't know what you paid for it when you got it 20, 30, $40 or something. Yeah. It is now worth I looked it up two days ago, is about 500 There's like one copy on Amazon. No, it's $700 now. Oh, well, I guess it depends on where you're looking. There was one copy on Amazon <laughs> that was $500. Then I saw it on my favorite yeah. site for collector books, A Books, A-B-E-B-O-O-K-S.com. They had a couple that were five to 700 None of them mm-hmm. as prestigious as yours, though, Rich, because yours, what's different about yours?
2: Well, for those of you who are watching on video... My copy is a pristine copy signed by Ken Webster. That is amazing.
1: Ken Webster is indeed the author of this book, which is, as it says on the cover here, Ken Webster, The Vertical Plane, The Mystery of the Doddleston Messages, A Bizarre Record of Communication Through Time. And the cover... Is one of the creepiest covers of ever. I always like when you look at this, you're like, what the hell is this book about? I can't even tell what's going on here. There's a guy and he's got an Elizabethan collar, which I always think of the black adder who used to say, you look like a bird <laughs> that swallowed a plate. But it's a really cool book cover. <laughs> yes. And obviously, we've had it for three years and we we're like, hey, let's do this. This will be fun leading into the spooky season this year. You know, we've been sitting on this for three years and I was excited to finally start reading it. And I was a good five chapters into it, highlighting every other page and writing in it in pen before I remembered it was worth $500. So,
2: But see, now it's worth even more because <laughs> you've made your own personal <laughs> notes in it. So now it's what they call an association copy.
0: Oh, it's worth $510. <laughs> yeah.
2: Right. It's like if Groucho Marx signed one of his books to his brother Harpo. Yeah, right. Uh It'd be worth even more. It's like, whoa, this is Harpo's copy of Groucho's book, or, you know, some other like, you know, I've got a copy of a book called The Omega Project by Kenneth Ring. Oh, yeah, I've Hmm. heard of that book. It compares people who have had alien encounter experiences with people who have had near death experiences to see if there's an overlap in the personality type. Somewhat scientific, but also kind of sociological. And I had a hardcover of it, but then for sale, I saw a hardcover first edition that was part of Anne Rice's personal library. Oh my gosh. And so because I know about her, I immediately bought it. It wasn't that expensive, but what people don't know about Anne Rice is, like you, she writes in all her books and the book on every single page has Anne Rice's personal thoughts about the text. No. And it's amazing. And so if you ever get a chance, if you're an Anne Rice fan, if there's ever a book from her personal collection, buy it, and you'll get an insight into how she reads books.
1: Wow, that's tip of the day, right here, right out of the gate. Boom. We're already burying the lead. Let's talk about this (laughs) book a little bit, because Forrest and I always joke about spoilers. I always say that I like to go into things completely cold. I a lot of times that meant, back when the movie theaters were open anyway, <laughs> that used to mean that I would see some bombs. I would see some real horrible films. Because I would just be, I'm not watching any trailers. I'm not going to read any reviews. I'm just going to go in and sit down. And I like to do that with books, too. So I went into this not really understanding what it was about. I thought it was going to be a ghost story. And even though it says a bizarre record of communication through time. I didn't realize how much of a time travel story this seems to be on the surface, but then it's got elements like Skinwalker Ranch of all of these other aspects being tied into it, paranormal aspects. And then on top of that, I'm just going to say right out of the gate, it's the most interesting book I've read since we started Astonishing Legends.
2: Wow. Okay, can I give like a two-sentence description of how I would describe the book to a friend? Absolutely. 1984. Guy living in a small town in England, just outside of London, starts getting messages on his computer from someone who lived in the cottage where he's living 400 years ago. This is before the internet, before computers had the ability to talk to each other when they were just a piece of hardware that you would use to create documents and then hopefully print those documents out. So way before what computers are used for now, this was a home computer, and he's getting messages from 400 years ago. That's the gist of what's happening here, and then it gets weird.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's a really good brief summary of it. And just to reiterate, this 1985 and 86, there were modems around, but nobody had them. And there was definitely not one in this case. There was no phone connected to this computer.
2: Modems, like, weren't even for home use at that point, were they? they were, I think it was for, like, you know, some lab in Washington.
1: It's like the scene in War Games where they, you know, pick up the phone and put it down in the box with the speaker and the whatever receiver, and then the, the data
0: goes through the uh, audio right. waves, the analog audio there. This is an old BBC computer. So that's a brand in England. It's essentially just a word processor. It doesn't do much else, but you can save files, uh, but not internally. I don't think there's any internal storage.
2: Is it the equivalent of the old TRS-80?
0: Yes. It's an 8-bit computer made
1: by uh, the manufacturer's Acorn Computers. The developer is BBC, not the television channel. Right. Uh, yeah. And it was <laughs> yeah. discontinued 27 years ago. In 1994, they sold over 1.5 million of them, according to Wikipedia.
2: I bet to a lot of your listeners, this is all like weird Model T ancient technology it's like what this is like the edsel but we lived through this as teenagers and young adults we lived through the dawn of the home computer when it was yep. just a word processor that's it yeah. was just a a fancy typewriter on a television screen
1: yes and you didn't need correction tape anymore
2: <laughs> right and there was the dot matrix printer right on that stupid two tone light green <laughs> and white it seemed so modern then, and it seems so ridiculously primitive now. And we're talking 35 years.
0: Yeah, right. <laughs> yes. And look at all your emails now and how many misspellings and grammar errors there are with all the spell check we have, apps like Grammarly, yeah. and still people are misspelling. And they don't care. It doesn't matter anymore. But that factor has a lot to do with tonight's story in that we're getting messages from beyond. At first blush, you're getting messages from an unknown, mysterious source, and there's a lot of spelling errors and grammatical errors. And in Ken's case, uh, Ken Webster was a teacher who taught uh, economics, I believe. That was uh, one of the subjects he taught. He's also a musician, kind of semi-pro, and uh, is really into Jaguar cars, uh, restoring them and owning them. And those are his main hobbies. And as he said in the book, not parapsychology. He did not have any interest in this stuff. He didn't care about it. This thing happened to him. Essentially, when he brought home a borrowed computer, BBC computer from the maths, as they call it in in the UK, maths. So there's plural. There's more than one math. The maths department and the computer lab, which is kind of combined. And they had a surplus of computers. You can check one out. That's what he did and brought it home, set it up on the kitchen table for his friend Nicola. She wanted to write some cabaret acts. She just come back from, I believe, Africa. Uh, was teaching there, and uh, was staying with them as a guest. And then the third person in this is Deborah or Debbie, who was Ken's nineteen-year-old girlfriend. I don't. I never found out how old Ken
2: was, but he's a little bit older. Because I forgot. Deb was so young, I assume Nicola was pretty like these are young people. Yeah, Yeah. These are people in their 20s at best.
0: Yeah, because also this takes a lot of energy what they're doing. Ken is teaching, that's exhausting. And a lot of the descriptions he has in the first part of the book about just how drab and dreary and exhausted the teachers are. And also he had just spent a the long summer doing a lot of reconstruction on this cottage. So the cottage that he was living in is a very old cottage, uh, at least the early 1500s. Then you cut to 1984, and here you have Ken Webster refurbishing it. So totally regutted the living room. There's concrete dust everywhere. And as he says, he was glad that he could just sit down for a cup of tea and not have to rest his feet on a, a bag of concrete. <laughs> you know, just imagine anybody doing construction in, in the place that you're living. It's messy. It's annoying. That was his whole summer, and now we're getting into the
2: winter. I want to make sure that we sort of do the chronology. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm looking at Scott here, and it's doubly challenging because we're following in the book two separate timelines in a way, right. the modern timeline being 1984, 85, into 86, and then another timeline in the 1500s that they're trying to sort of nail down in an accurate way, and that's also difficult. But what's interesting about this is that the whole story starts with what you and I and our listeners would call poltergeist activity. And Mm -hmm. in this case, it's footprints going up the wall. Yes.
0: That's the first thing that they noticed. The Meadow Cottage is in the town of Chester. I believe uh, Meadow Cottage is kind of on the outskirts southwest of Chester. This would be on the border of Wales. From the rest of the UK, basically central Wales, not too far north or south. And appearing late August or September of 1984 is when it started happening, where now we have Ken's good friend, Nicola Bagley, uh, his girlfriend, Debbie, and they're all staying in the cottage. And they start to notice coming out of the oblong electric heater, going up the wall, are tiny footprints, bare footprints, where you can see all six toes. Did you say all six toes?
1: Yeah, he oh, just threw that away. Sorry. Yeah, wait. I can see all six toes. Wait, don't. This is where we find out that Forrest thinks that six
2: toes are normal. Hold on. I- I'm reading Scott, don't my tell notes. Him. Don't tell him. It's a- no, I- you're right, Forrest. No, wait. all six toes on both feet. Go on. That's a good
0: point. You know, I was just kind of rapidly taking notes from the book, and I swear it said six. Right? It did. It did. It did. Absolutely. Well, this is a good point to stop here. There are six-toed footprints tiny ones going up the wall diagonally towards the ceiling and at first uh i think it was uh nicola who's kind of jokingly said like is anybody here just like resting their feet (laughs) like maybe sitting in a chair and then maybe goofing off like a little kid with their back on the kitchen table and and having the footprints going up the wall because they look like they were formed from concrete dust uh somebody with dirty feet But they go up the wall. Yes. Well, that's really weird. They had a laugh about it. And then as they're doing the painting, because she was, uh, uh, Nick was helping with the decorating, she painted over it and eventually it covered up the footprints. But they appeared again, different ones this time, not in the same position. But again, six toes, (laughs) as I wrote down here. So I guess I guess it must be right. But again, small, tiny footprints with the six toes. And this lets you know, though, that it wasn't an old gag they seemed fresh. Somebody came in and did this again between coats of paint. So that's pretty odd. That was kind of the first sign like, well, that's funny. Is somebody pranking us?
2: Well, okay. So far we've got two tropes. We've got the recent renovation of an old place and within the lore of haunted houses, when renovations begin, that's when the spirits wake up. Of course. Yeah. That's many times. Right. Okay. Right. The second thing is poltergeist activity. Now the, The footprints may not be the most common sign of a haunting or a poltergeist, but the next thing that happened feels like the most common poltergeist move, right?
0: Yeah we'll have a link to this book I, and i just looked it went down to 500
2: just as we've been talking the yeah. price yeah. is dropping
0: a, <laughs> <laughs> okay
1: so what you're saying is i was right 20 minutes ago when i said it was 500 but secondly there's only like one two copies
0: nobody's going to buy this book you can't here's the deal uh if you look right now there's three used from 500 you're correct what i saw is there's one new copy starting at $768.57
2: Okay. So, uh, if you want a new one, that's what's going to set you back. New condition. not. Unfortunately, there's no yeah. like new printing.
0: Yeah, there's only one printing. There was some talk that we saw on a blog post we're going to talk about where it was a very lively and very strange debate going on. There, there was some talk about it being reprinted in 2017. That seems to not have happened. There was also talk of a documentary and a feature film could be delayed by COVID. We don't know. But last night, I think when I checked Amazon UK, it was uh, over 600 British pounds for this book. So uh, you do the math and exchange
2: rate on that. I'm looking it up right now, and I will tell you that there is actually a bookseller in South Africa. I'm looking on a website called A D D A L L A-D-D-A-L-L.com. It's a aggregate of various book search websites. But if you go there, there's $50 or $60. So these are the cheapest ones I found. And for the listeners, I wish there was a reprint. I wish you could all immediately go and buy a copy of this book for $17.95. Right. So that you could all enjoy what we enjoyed. But right now, I would say your best shot is to buy the copy. There's one copy right now. Yeah, in South Africa that is selling for about 50 bucks. So
1: <laughs> when there's a book that's really hard to find and you see those websites that say, here's a PDF, you can download it. And then they want you to put your email in and all that, that's a scam. Don't do it. They don't have oh, yeah. it. They're going to trick you and then try to sign you up for something or start charging your credit card and you will never get a copy of the book. There is no PDF of this book online right now.
2: And this book gets name checked all the time. In fact, I was thinking back to how I even found it in the first place. Yeah. How did you find it? It must have been in the late 90s because I know that in the late 90s, I was going through, I'd gone through a big EVP phase, reading Mm -hmm. every book and collecting every book about EVP that I could find. And then that led to a later obsession, which was ITC, Instrumental Transcommunication. Mm -hmm. These are books or newsletters put out by researchers who sort of leveled up from just attempting to capture EVP on recording devices to actually experimenting with video equipment, which was fairly new at the time. And it almost seems like every time there's a new technology one of the first things that happens is, of course, A, it's used for sex (laughs) and pornography, (laughs) and then B, it's used to communicate with the dead. It's the same thing in this case. So then I began reading books by people who were communicating with the dead through fax machines, videotape recorders. And then as I was reading these books, they started talking about this guy in England named Ken Webster who communicated through his home computer with a person who who appeared to be almost living contemporaneously but 400 years earlier. And I'm like, what is this book? So in the early days, I mean, I'm talking like 1997, 98, early days of the internet, for me at least, I was using it for book searching. And that's when I found the exact same edition, this paperback copy of Vertical Plane by Ken Mm. Webster, and read it. And I remember that I had it in my offices when we were doing Miracles, which was in 2001, 2002. And that was the TV show that now Scott's watching. But that was the TV show that I did almost 20 years ago. And some of the writers on staff were reading my paperback copy. And that's when I thought I'd better get another one because this one's going to go missing. (laughs) So I bought one and then I bought a couple because people kept borrowing it. And then pretty soon I had a a handful of copies, two of which I gave to you guys. So those copies I had lying around for almost 20 years.
0: Wow. Oh man, thank you so much. As we go along, keep in mind, this is all about the untrustworthy narrator. Not pointing a finger at Ken Webster, but there are so many layers of truths and, and misdirection and possible untruths and motivations. Ken is trying his best to lay out what happened chronologically but it just gets so weird. So in any case, that's how the story starts out. That's the scene. They're trying to renovate the house. This first thing happened. And then strange things start to happen again. In that classic, uh, they noticed a, uh, a cold rush of wind comes in from under the kitchen door, which leads to the living room. Somehow underneath the door, they can see it, lifts up a folded newspaper on the floor and just tosses it into the air. And it comes down in several folded sections. One of those moments that I call it, I've seen it a little bit in my life, where it's questionable physics. That shouldn't have been the case. The doors to the outside are closed. How did this rush of air come in from the kitchen into the living room underneath the kitchen, that, that partition door, lift up the newspaper several feet into the air? So strange things are happening. And now they're noticing in this one particular part of the kitchen on the counter, things are being stacked. Classic poltergeist activity. That's the one not a 3D pyramid, but as he describes it, a human pyramid shape. So it's a single row cans of, uh, I think, cat food or packets of cat food. They all go to the market one day, they come back, buy a bunch of groceries, just stuff it into the cabinets. They come back a little while later. A lot of things are stacked. One interesting thing here, I don't know if we want to get into this, they start noticing, okay, so somebody's playing a prank on them. Obviously, the cottage is being renovated. It's easy to come in Ken has a couple of other friends uh, who are musicians with a lazy John, the guitar player, who's uh, probably up for a good prank and a weird sense of humor, the gangly, tall uh, keyboardist, and who's a really nice guy, but could have been any one of those people. Somebody's having a laugh with them. That's got to be the, the case here. As they go out or they go to bed, somebody's sneaking in. Playing a prank on them.
1: Yeah. And he explains that the house is never locked. I mean, it's like a creative commune vibe yeah, here. It's yeah. like, hey, you yeah, know, people want to come over and play. He was like, well, we got a four track in the back bedroom. <laughs> yeah. Those guys would come over and record whatever. People are coming and going. When the stuff started getting stacked, there were a lot of potential suspects. And the first thing that probably went through all their minds, uh, being a bunch of musicians,
0: is like, oh, is somebody's practical joke? Somebody's messing with us. This is a joke. Yeah. Right? Musicians love to have fun. Here, but here's where it starts to get odd. And having. Done the research and experiences that we've had. I'm going to lay this out here as the first sign of something happening dealing with aportation, or uh, as Rich may know, objects that get passed to spirit mediums from the other side. In this case, and I'm sure one of our uh, UK listeners could show us a picture. I didn't really dig too deep for this, but essentially, a uh, like a six pack of logger, in bottles, and it comes in a plastic netting, I think, or at least plastic ties that keeps it together. They come back, and the the bottles are stacked. The ties are off, but the plastic looks like it's been burnt or melted or singed on the ends. And this point, like Ken's saying, okay, if you're having a laugh, you're melting this stuff. Like you're playing, you're literally playing with fire. This is not you know, somebody's drunk or something and they're goofing around and maybe trying to scare us with something being on fire, but like, it's not getting funny anymore. Like you could have burned the place down. Why is this burnt? So keep that in mind, something coming back and it melting an object. That's very significant to me. That stood out. I made a note of it because as I'm at that part of the book, are we going to see this type of action again? And we do.
2: Hey everyone. It's Casey from Minnesota. And when I'm not recommending ghost stories in my middle school library, I'm listening to Astonishing Legends. Now let's get back to the show.
0: So getting back to the scene, as Ken Webster says, Meadow Cottage is very small for three people. He would have to go take a drive in his, uh, his rusty, rattly Volkswagen to just be alone. And so they're stepping out for a while, but there's usually always people in the cottage, unless they all three go out for some reason. But Nicola had left her job teaching in English in July, and so her plan here was to start working on an alternative cabaret band in hopes of getting enough uh, gigs together and forming an act to uh, get enough performing credits for an equity card. So Rich will know what that is, but basically an actor's uh, union card. So she was writing sketches and dialogue for a show she wanted to put on, and Ken said, well, you know what, we have word processors at the school, and why don't you start typing on that? Because as we we said earlier, imagine, unlike a typewriter, being able to shift around sentences and pages and whole paragraphs and edit in the computer and then print it out exactly the way you want it. And so that's what he did. He brought home a computer uh, from the Harwarden High School. Harwarden is uh, the name of the school. That comes up again. And It's a simple but useful BBC microcomputer, eight uh, computers, I think, in the lab there, and it had a processing chip that was called Edward, and it's E-D and the word word, E-D-W-O-R-D, and that struck me also as a, a very old British name as well. That's the basic computer, but he was going to give it to Nick to work on.
2: Anyone who who was around in the early to mid 80s and had any familiarity with these devices Mm -hmm. knows that these were bulky, box-like, heavy, often pieces of equipment. In no way were they like what we're using right now to conduct this conversation. (laughs) These sort of slim, streamlined you know, these were not laptops. These were bulky. They were—they were like portable televisions. And yeah. if there was a separate printer, that was a giant production. You know, right. and uh, sometimes the keyboard was attached. Sometimes the keyboard was separate. But again, that was large, oversized. These—these these are big, bulky things that are difficult to move around.
0: Yeah, they operate on a floppy disk, so that's the only way you can save your work you have to use the floppy just to save your files to, because if you just shut down the computer and you didn't save anything, it goes away. And that is one gripe against the movie a lot of people love, uh, uh, Stand By Me. The narrator writer uh, writes this whole uh, story out and at the, the last shot, he just shuts the computer off without saving anything. Oh. <laughs>
2: just heard that be <laughs> right, like, exactly. just lost That's everything!
0: Crazy. Yeah. But that was done, of course, as we know, in the movies for dramatic effect. Like, there you go, I'm closing the book.
2: And, and then you had to have a lot of those those yes. floppy disks, because they didn't hold that much information. Right. And then even when they went to the smaller hard disks, yeah. when I had a computer and I was using those disks and I was writing screenplay length files, it would be considered dangerous to save an entire screenplay on one disk. Right. People right, were yeah. often like, no, no, you should use multiple disks. You <laughs> don't want it to suddenly overload and then crash and mm-hmm. lose everything. You were constantly concerned with backing up everything you did on these physical little coaster-sized discs that you then had to save remotely in a container. I mean, it was, again, I'm I'm basically talking to anyone (laughs) 30 and younger who never had to deal with any of this. It was barely convenient. It shows you how
0: things have changed. And that's significant to this story because Back in those days, as we've said on the show, the old computer programmer's adage was, if data does not exist in two different places, it doesn't exist. It is so tenuous. Something can happen. A disk could get uh, magnetized. You could spill coffee on it, and there it goes uh, away forever. Nowadays, you do one embarrassing thing, and you can't scrub it from the internet for any price. It's just out there in the universe because there's so much storage now that nothing ever goes
2: away. And if someone told you the exact same events happening today as opposed to 1984, you wouldn't believe it for five seconds because every computer is basically an antenna drawing in information from a billion different sources. Right. And the notion that, hey, one day on my computer there were weird messages, there's so many ways that can happen now you wouldn't. Exactly. You don't even think about it. You go back 30, 35 years, And it is very strange because it simply wasn't possible then.
0: One, people kept their computers on, just, they weren't drawing a whole lot of power. So generally, if you're taking turns working on it, everyone's just got the computer left on. Same thing today. So that was the case here. It's set up on the kitchen table because everybody's using it. It's the only table they had uh, standing up in in the bottom level of the cottage. And it's left on. And also today, everything's in the cloud. There was no idea of a cloud back then. There's, there's no network for this computer to hook up to. You're just using it basically as an electronic typewriter. So that's what was so strange in that mindset for these folks coming back one day and seeing that somehow there's a new file on the floppy disk. And Scott, why don't you uh, tell us that story of how this is revealed in just the file name and how it appears?
1: Right. They're talking about how they left for a while and left the computer on. And they actually went out, I think, for a few days. And then when they came back, they came back to the computer. And just so folks know, Edward, again, W-O-R-D, it was considered a very powerful piece of software, according to all the history that you look into. In fact, there's many things you can find online where people say that that was what you really paid for, whatever computer you had, if it could run Edward, you were good to go. Mm-hmm. That was the I think everybody wanted was the word processing power back then. And this apparently worked pretty well. But it was also, I seem to remember from the end of the book, it was made locally, not too far from where he lived, which would fit because they probably got the contract with the school system. And keeping in mind, they're just checking these systems out and bringing them home like in a box. And then he has to take them back because the computers are so precious. Everybody doesn't have one. I mean, they're precious in the way that... They're really expensive, they're several thousand dollars. Keeping in mind the, the Macintosh, the very first Apple computer came out in January of 84. So that had been out about a year, but that machine was the equivalent of $6,000. Nobody had them. Right. So the PCs were a lot cheaper he would go to the school and he would get these to bring them home, you know, for his friend to use and also for this story to take place on. By the way, there was several in there. They never knew which one he was going to check out. And in terms of like, when you think about a hoax and the possibility of something weird going on, could have been any one of these eight or 10 computers that were available for him
0: to bring home. Somebody did look up where the Edward chip was made. And weirdly, there are a lot of strange coincidental connections with this story. It was manufactured by a company called Clwyd Technics. So it's a Welsh name, C-L-W-Y-D, Clwyd Cloud, uh, Technics. And nobody knows really what happened to the company afterwards. It was a company that was dealt in a lot of high tech and advanced robotics with motion sensors, uh, very expensive equipment. But it seems like a very small company that was also in Wales. And it's just odd that that chip for this computer, which is so important and integral to these communications, comes from a place that was so close and slightly mysterious.
1: You know, I just looked it up. Once you said the name, i had forgotten that was the name of the company. It says right here, Edward is a word processing package for the BBC Microcomputer. Just specifically for that, I guess. Designed initially for use in education, the package provides a very user-friendly word processor suitable for preparation of all small documents and capable of running on low-cost hardware. There's one here at the Center for Computing History. I guess it's some kind of museum somewhere. You can click on the mm-hmm. image of the actual. We'll share this image. It's very cool. It says copyright 1983, published by Cloud or Cloud. I can't do Welsh. Fluid uh, Technics Limited. Yeah. The Coach House, Kelsterton Road, Flint Cloud. It's got the address and everything. So we'll have to look that up. But uh, so, yeah, but getting back to uh, John Teeter esque type of connections. This is very specific kind of software that's connected to this story. So they come back. I'm going to read what happened when they get back to the house after leaving it for a while and the computer being on. This is the very first message. It has something uh, that the kids do a lot these days with memes and stuff. The uppers and lowers are mixed up. The capitals, (laughs) some are small caps and some are capital for no apparent reason. And this very first message, and what happened was they come in and it says here, uh, this is on page 20 of the book, there appeared to be a new file named KDN. Nick's work was under single letter file names, for example, D or O. The only other material on the disk was a colleague's timetabling outlines, as it was a borrowed disk. I called file KDN up, and the disk drive hummed and clicked, and here's what the message said. Ken, Deb, Nick. That would be KDN. The names of the three people here. We've got Ken, his girlfriend Debbie, and his friend Nicola. True are the nightmares of a person that fears. Safe are the bodies of the silent world. Turn pretty flowers towards the sun, for you shall grow and sow. But the flower reaches too high and withers in the burning light. Get out your bricks. That's in all caps, except for the S at the end. Pussycat, pussycat, went to London to seek fame and fortune. Faith must not be lost, for this shall be your redeemer. So uh, here's what Ken writes in conclusion to that message. I couldn't help it. The most disturbing and cliche-ridden feeling came over me. A shiver (laughs) ran down my spine that threatened to shake my feet. I caught the first two lines and read and reread them. The rest I didn't seem to see in those first seconds. It was obviously to us. It was appalling. I felt bad that I had called it into view. So that's the very first message. That's the message that triggers this whole story. In the meanwhile, surrounding the presence of this story, what's happening is a lot of the uh, stacking is going on that we've been talking about. Mm -hmm. And this is going to get more and more extreme. But at this point, it's mostly small things, things in the kitchen. They come in and they're kind of laughing about it to a certain extent. But between the stacking and the footprints... Those things are coinciding with this message coming in on the computer. So then they figure out they've been leaving the computer on and they, they start to wonder if any other messages are occurring. And this is when they start looking into it and they found this new message after the first one. It's hard to tell from a time standpoint when, how long after the first one had occurred, but it, it seems like it's a few days based on the events in the book. And these are translated. I want to make that clear. Mm -hmm. The messages are coming in very old-style English. And there's a use of words that they don't necessarily recognize. And that's a point uh, that we'll be talking about further as we go on. So if I were to read the original message, it's a bit Shakespearean. It also has words that are not words, again, that you might
0: recognize. Like the word many is spelled M-A-N-Y-E. It is essentially Tudor English, they find out later. So uh, actually, I was on... (laughs) When I did my appearance on the Loremen, uh, we were joking around about that. How uh, I was saying there's a lot of extra E's and G's and extra letters that are silent in uh, Old English. And that's what you get here, a lot of uh, wise, uh, yeah, so it's, it, this would predate Shakespeare by like a generation or so.
1: Yeah, it's clearly very old language, and the thing that's happening here, too, is that Ken, is, as he says, he's translating it, and towards the end of the book, he says, you know, there could be errors from the translation, it's, right. it's either him or his friend Thomas, who's Oxford educated, they're translating it, but they think that they're getting it pretty close, and so here's a sample of the line from the original message, actually, let me read that, because it is interesting, of course, you can't see how it's spelled, but I write on behalf of many, <laughs> what strange word is words thou speak, although I must confess that I hath also been ill-schooled. Sometimes, methinks, alterations are somewhat barful, for they break many sleeps in mine bed. Thou art goodly man, who hath fanciful woman, who dwell in mine home. I hath no want to affray, for only Sith mine half-witted Antic has ripped a twain mine bound so... You get a sense of how these, so they, but they are going through and they're translating, and this is what they think this message means. I write on behalf of many. What strange words you speak, although I must confess that I too have been badly educated. Sometimes it seems changes are somewhat obstructive, for many a time they disturb me sleeping in my bed. You are a worthy man who has a fanciful woman, and you live in my house. I have no wish to alarm you, for it is only since the half-witted full ripped apart my confines have I been tormented at night's. I have seen many changes. Lastly, the schoolhouse and your home. It is a fitting place with lights which the devil makes and costly things which only my friend Edmund Gray can afford or the king himself. It was a great crime to have stolen my house, and it's signed L.W. Now, this is the first one that's signed. But this indicates that there's a kind of interaction going on. They have not tried to send any messages to this character Mm -hmm. at this point. They still don't know where this is coming from. So here we are. This is the crux of the story. This is the beginning of a long series of messages that seem to be coming from a different time period on this computer that has been checked out from the school and left on in the kitchen of the cottage.
2: Okay, so what we have is it appears that L.W. is able to see some of... Ken Webster's current reality. Mm -hmm. Yes. There's a school there. He can see the school or is aware of the school. He's aware of many changes, which it sounds to me like it refers to, wow, things have changed a lot between the time that I am living and the time you are from. Right. It almost sounds like LW thinks that Ken Webster and Deb and Nicola are haunting his house Which gives us shades of The Others, the Nicole Kidman movie.
1: Yes. Mm, mm -hmm, But mm
2: -hmm. what's most interesting to me, and it only occurred to me when you were just reading it just now, and I've read the book a couple times, but considering what comes in the future, it's interesting that the very first thing he says is that I write on behalf of many. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What is he referring to? Who are the many?
1: Yeah, and how do we know we're interacting with him? And then when you get a message like that, I mean, the first thing I think of is demons and we are legion. That's the Mm -hmm. first thing I think of Mm -hmm. when you get a message like that. It's like we represent many. So that was the first thought I had.
0: Uh, What do they call it? The king rat, uh, (laughs) that grotesque scenario where rats get entangled with their tails, uh, either through dirt or they freeze and then they they roll around as a ball of, uh, what a nightmarish thing, the ball of rats. People have often talked about, uh, mediums have, about uh, spirit bundles where they're bound up, controlled by a more or overlord of of a powerful spirit, controlling lesser spirits, feeding off their energy, and all of them looking to drain someone or something or exploit some situation for their own gain. And usually it's energy and access to this world. And that's, as Scott said, that's the first thing I thought of coming out of your Tandy computer (laughs) coming out of your BBC computer in a weird way, or at least showing up. And so what you have here, uh, it sounds like Middle English, which is really hard to discern the time periods, but basically popular for about 300 years from around 1150 current era to about 1450. So a little less than a hundred years later, this is a language being spoken. And uh, that's important to know because it's really odd. They're thinking somebody knows at least enough about this type of language here that they can goof around with it. They're still thinking this is a, a kind of a freaky prank, but somebody has uh, is writing some bad poetry, which doesn't sound like that. And then there's another voice or another narrator, you could say, narrators in this story are all over the place and hard to keep track of, who is speaking in Middle English, but like they're writing letters or they're leaving notes to you. And so this is odd because basically Middle English here was the predominant language. It developed after the Norman invasion. So those in power would have spoken French. And then you have the native languages and it gets kind of mixed. And so you have a translation uh, or you have a transference of some Germanic words being the Anglo-Saxon with the French and Language was new here. So even what Scott has read here, you get what this guy's saying or whoever this is talking, you understand what they're saying, but not some of the more important words. And then what I've noticed when I read, that's what slowed me way down. I'm I'm rereading and rereading these messages. Like, what does he mean exactly? Because one word off and the tone changes from pleasant to angry or annoyed. Or what does he mean exactly? Because in this case, if these are mysterious messages from beyond, You want to know exactly what this person's saying and what they're exactly talking about because Ken and his friends, they start to analyze these messages because one, well, they're doing it very cautiously because they could have a lot of egg on their face. Like, look at these idiots here who believed (laughs) old John here had a few pints, snuck in that night, typed up some um, Blarney on the computer, and they all bought into it and got freaked out for a month. They're constantly aware of this. They're very, very skeptical of what's going on and also... It's so weird. It's starting to freak them out. So there's a lot of tension in the cottage. Sleepless nights. They don't know who's breaking in to do this. And at weird hours. And at times they thought they were all there. It's very strange. It cannot be categorized. And also whoever's doing it knows enough about uh, like late middle English and uh, Tudor English to mess with them because they're looking these words up. It's like, well, it... As far as they know at that moment, now people disagreed later. There are linguists who uh, later on, as I saw in some interviews, uh, said that, well, it doesn't exactly match the time period, but this is all filled with discrepancies as far as the old messages coming in. You know, and these are smart people, Uh, Ken and his friend, uh, John and Peter, they're very smart people. They're educators and John's a solicitor, so he's a lawyer. They're finding out that this does seem to match the time period, this wording here in that some things may be anachronistic, but it's really matching up. So this isn't really just a a drunk idiot. (laughs) This is a a somewhat learned person doing this if they're pulling a prank. And at this point in the book, it's got to be a prank. Messages from another entity or consciousness from beyond, that's not an
2: option. So how is this person doing it? And going back to something you said earlier, this sort of clarifies kind of the challenge of what you kind of refer to as the um, untrustworthy narrator. In certain messages early on that Ken gets from LW, there are some historical inaccuracies, which make Ken suspect that it must be a hoax and the hoaxer is getting his facts wrong. But then Mm -hmm. in a later message from LW, LW claims to have put in the historical inaccuracies on purpose to test the person from the future whom he doubts and he put those inaccuracies in to see if they would be caught because he assumes well in the future you will definitely know that these statements here aren't true because that college that i refer to jesus university or whatever it was mm-hmm. it's like That doesn't exist. And so I put it there on purpose to see if you're really from the time you claim to be from, because if you're from the future, you should know that those things don't exist. And that was my way of testing you. So it does become this weird sort of game where spirit and human, if you will, are Mm -hmm. testing each other, because in the time frame where LW exists... He's not a spirit. He's still alive. Right. Later, it gets even stranger because certain events occur that make Ken really worry for the well-being of L.W., whose name is later revealed to be Lucas. Mm -hmm. And he's really worried because he's like, oh, my gosh, the very fact that we're communicating might be endangering Lucas's life. And then you sit back and go, but wait a second. Either way, the guy's been dead for 400 years. The (laughs) guy's already dead.
0: (laughs) Right. (laughs) Well, here's the thing. Yes. In that regard, one major theme throughout the book is it's all about trust. It's who do you believe? And if you look at it just as a piece of uh, nonfiction or fiction, this tale, and you, you come away, it's like, well, can I even believe Ken Webster? Who do I believe in this? And it reminded me that the scene in the, uh, there's going to be a lot of movie references, folks, at least for me. Neo goes to the Oracle. He's like, and she says, well, here's the big question. You have no way of knowing if you can trust me. And she says, I'm sorry, but I, I can't prove that to you. You're going to have to make a choice and go with it. And right. that's it. You, you have this person who seems to be omniscient, who knows things about you and what's going to happen. And they're telling you other things that are laid out, but how do you trust them? And the point is, you can't really. You have to look deep down in your soul and go with your gut, because there's going to be conflicting things. So there's distrust from this voice on the other side of the box, the magic box of lights, as he calls it later. You got to realize if this person is from the uh, claims to be from the reign of Henry VIII, when his queen was a th- <laughs> Catherine Parr. Now that narrows in a time that, that he says he's from, but even that doesn't line up well in that he doesn't have electricity. He doesn't even know what this thing is that he seems to be working to communicate with the future. So he's very distrustful of who he's talking about. And he's annoyed with them at first. It's like, Look, I've been very nice to you. I've been very kind. I'm being very polite here. Why don't you trust me when I tell you what I'm what I'm saying? And why don't you tell me what you're doing in my house?
2: But it's also hard to keep track of because we're made to understand that Lucas has been given something by someone that is allowing him to communicate with Ken Webster. But what Lucas's understanding of that item is and how he's using it, and why at the same time, it somehow seems to allow him to see Ken and Deb and Nicola in his house. That's not explained. Is he looking at like a security camera? Yeah. Like, Like if you imagine a security camera inside Ken Webster's house in 1985. Right. And so you can see inside the house. Now, is the house so recognizable and do the dimensions so match where Lucas lived and when Lucas lived that he understands that it's his house? Or is he literally seeing ghosts of them in his cottage in 1530s, 1540s, whenever it is, again, it's really hard to understand. What's really moving about the whole thing is that a relationship develops here. And if you're using movie references then I think the movie Frequency, in a way. Dennis Quaid? Yeah. Yeah, because it's like these people who are talking to each other, but at the time they're talking, both people are alive, as far as they know, even though time separates them to the point where, for one person, it seems like they're talking to someone who's died years ago, and for the other person, it's more of a weird science fiction, Twilight Zone scenario, where they're talking to somebody from the future. Right. And that's what these two individuals, well, three, if you include Deb, who comes into the story in a in, in a stranger way a little later. But what are these people feeling? Again, if we just assume that Lucas is a living flesh and blood human being, mm-hmm. what is his emotional experience here? The weirdest part is that he's been given a piece of technology that cannot exist in his time. Right. He's been given this by somebody. We don't know who.
1: And that's not made clear in the book for a while. It comes later, later in the book. But you don't really understand how he's communicating. But the thing is, Ken Webster doesn't understand it either. So no. and we're not going to read every single message, but this is the, the next long one. This is, I just want people to get a sense of how involved this gets. This is the, the next kind of big one before Ken and his friends are able to actually interact. This is the one that comes again from the other side from 400 years prior from this LW or Lucas. And in fact, this is the first one he signs his name, Lucas. Again, translated by Ken. My goodly friend, I must needs say, how is it that there are many things of which I have no knowledge? It seems to me that if you cannot say why you are in my house, then I can no more help you than if my wits had gone. I have no kinfolk I can tell you about. My wife was taken with the pestilence, and the Lord did take her soul and her unborn son, 1517. My farm, it is humble, but it has a pretty parcel of land. It has redstone footings and clean rushes on the beaten floor. This season, I have much to do. I have to sow my barley early for my ale. It is this that is my craft and which I am best at, I fancy. Also, I have to go to Nantwich to my known friend, Richard Wishall, whose farm is so great as to allow him a four-year rotation of fallow. I do so envy him, he has so much there, but nothing that delights me more than his cheese, it cannot be equaled by any other for pleasantness of taste and wholesomeness of digestion. I shall also call it Nantwich Market, it is not so great as Chester Market by the cross, but it is of some interest. I shall need to go to Chester this season to get my shoes, my goodly friend Thomas Aldersay, a tailor by craft, makes them sometimes. I also make shoes, but none of my swine are ready, it is far too costly unless I need kill one. Do you know the country of Chester, the Watergate, is a place that brings many traders. It is a shame the port does shrink. I can remember great ships now, they get smaller by each tide, but Chester Port is still greater than that of Liverpool. I am often to the east wall of Chester, Cow Lane. It is not so tiresome there than by the cross, that is, when my fowl or swine do not trip up my poor body, I hear tell that you are a teacher in Howarden. And then he says, do you mean Howardine, H-A-O-R-D-I-N-E, the first spelling being H-A-W-A-R-D-E-N. Do you still earn the great sum of 20 pounds per year? And then he says, I remember my unpleasant Dean, Henry Mann, M-A-N-N, who was likened to Mm. a fish. If any boy shall appear naturally averse to learning after fair trial, he shall be expelled elsewhere, lest like a drone he should devour the bee's honey. Nay, I cannot make merry on holy day for fear of my life, my friend, was once a fluting on a holy day and did have his ears pinned to the wood block. I think when you say Doddleston, you mean Duddleston. My queen, of course, is Catherine Parr, Lucas. So not going to read a whole bunch of those like super Mm -hmm. crazy long ones like that. But uh, what I wanted to convey there is just like, oh, we're pen pals. I know I'm, it's 400 yeah. years. It's a long time whatever, but well, you must have this in common. You know this place, you know that place. This is my farm oh. that you know, the other people here's the stuff I do. I got to get some shoes. I got pigs and chickens, you know, all that kind of <laughs> stuff.
2: When he starts talking about the details of the town he lives in, yes. other people and the ships coming into the port and things that you suddenly think, "Oh, we can check this out." Guess what it reminded me of. Well, I already know, <laughs> but I'm going to let you tell the listeners. The hungry ghosts.
1: Yes, the siren call of hungry
2: ghosts. It's like, wait a second. Now, now we're getting a lot of details. Are these details gonna check out, or are they gonna? Will some of them check out, but then others don't? I mean, I mean, you strip everything else away. It's a modern person having a kind of supernatural dialogue. Now, whether it's through a medium, whether it's through a channeler, or whether it's through a computer, Mm -hmm. are we dealing with the exact same thing? Is yeah. Lucas a hungry ghost?
1: Mm. He made an observation here on page thirty-three after that long passage. It's an exact same observation, and Rich, you haven't heard it yet because you probably don't listen to us very much. But there's a, <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't, jeez, <laughs> <Of course laughs> not. but
2: there's no, But I get enough of you guys.
1: The show we just did, uh, the Watsika Wonder, was about a girl seemingly possessed by another girl from her town that had passed twelve years prior. There was this exchange of information where the girl who was now alive seemed to be recalling all these memories of the departed girl uh, who had died prior. And I made the point of talking about, in part two of that series, how some of the references were very cutesy. And then this very phrase, and this this is on page 33. Yeah. The Uncharitable found the line about his chickens and pigs tripping him up at every turn very twee. And that's the same thing they're saying. They're saying, yeah, this I is too that. cute. Your pigs and chickens are tripping you. And it's just like when Mary Laurency Venom, or rancy was possessed by mary roth and the watsika wonder and she was like do you remember when i was a little girl and i used to come to your house and sing it's the exact same thing i said and that was before i read the vertical plane they're having the same reaction there's something about these details and that's for me was you know what caught me coming out of the gate it's like oh this is so cutesy and endearing why is it that way why are there always these weird endearing details mixed in that also seem to be like they're trying to convince you how real this all is
2: And then if it is real, if Lucas was a real guy, and let's assume everything that had to happen to him did happen to facilitate this communication, if we put ourselves in his mind, wouldn't we be asking more questions? Would we communicate in the exact same way, or would we simply talk about hey, you know, my, my friend makes great cheese. I've got another guy who's got a, a farm that's even better than mine. I like to make beer and shoes right back soon. Right. Really? Right. Is that all you'd say? Yeah. Or would you say, wow, I'm delighted to hear that the world still exists and uh, tell me, you know, who's king now? Wouldn't you ask more questions if you, look, if it happened to you and me today and suddenly <laughs> we were talking to somebody yeah. who was 400 years in the future, What are the questions we would have? And is Lucas asking those questions? That's also
0: developed on personality. There's there's a few things here that popped up in my mind. First of all, calling back to what Rich said, this book generates so many questions as you read along. And like the messages coming in, like the people who have questions for this, I will call it a consciousness. Obviously, we don't know what this is yet. Maybe we never find out. Something is communicating with them that you're getting a glimpse of, and that it's multiple things, possibly, this rat ball of spirits or consciousness. These messages are coming through, and you don't know what to think of them. As Scott said, I, I love this term, as the British say, twee. It's it's very cutesy, and they're not uh, unknown. As they say, the cheese there in uh, Chester, I believe, is is well known. Everybody knows it's delicious cheese. It's not such a, a big revelation. You didn't tell me anything I didn't already know. As Rich said, you're, you're telling me it's just like, how was your day today? Well, part of that, I, I believe, is personality. If you read the, the blog posts about this story, and some people have uh, made YouTube videos, people have weird ideas of questions they want to know about. It's not everything that us three here would want to know about or, or trying to get at it. And the higher intelligence coming through a little bit later also doesn't communicate or say or tell us the things that I would want to know. It doesn't all make sense, and it seems very personality-based. It seems kind of silly or, or cutesy. That gets me back to this little side thing here about, uh, again, the series Ghost, and that there are a couple of interesting ideas. One is you have the character of Julian Fawcett, who is a member of parliament, MP, and he has one talent. So in the show some of these spirits have uh, one thing that they can do. Not all of them do, but what he can do is he can press a key or he can move something with his finger and it takes a lot of effort. So he can move a teacup just a few centimeters to get somebody's attention. Or if it's a computer, if it's set up and this is again, the funny tie in if they leave the computer up, he's trying to get their attention by punching up a, a Wikipedia article, but it takes a lot of effort. He strains and he can do one letter And then he has to do another letter and so his talent is that he can do poltergeist activity in very small amounts uh, but it takes a long time and they're usually and for comic effect they're not really well thought out there's another character uh, who's a caveman robin who's been around a long time and his thing is that he can affect electricity he can make lights flicker and uh, he has a little bit of control over that but he's also looking at modern television And the comic line is that he gets really super involved into the fake moon landing conspiracy. He's like, what? You can land on the moon? And it's like, so his questions are a lot different when we thought like, well, yeah, you can land on the moon. What's the big deal? To him, it's a big deal. Lucas, and that's L-U-K-A-S, how he spells it at this point, his thinking is just like, well, I just, yeah, this is what I do in my daily life. I I know how to fish. I like to uh, grow my barley. I make ale. That's the thing I'm the best at. And he's telling us these really mundane pedestrian kind of details about his life. But then it makes me wonder, it's like, how does he see this? Is he a ghost? Because you start off thinking this is a ghost story. Is he just floating around knowing like, I'm dead, but I could watch these people renovate my my nice little cottage here. And they have a magic box of lights they tap away on. And maybe I can uh, tap away on it. What is he seeing, this Lucas? that's the first thought I had. It's like, what is his experience on his side of this communication? Uh, Because he can obviously hear them. Like he overhears their conversations a little bit. Like he tells Ken, it's like, oh, I've heard tell you are a teacher. Do you know this school? And uh, this was my headmaster. And he was kind of a, a, he was like an old fish. He's giving details that he obviously either can see or hear, but not very clearly. It's not like he's like, like uh, Rich said, he's watching a show about them. He's in there somehow, and there's layers. Like He can sp- maybe peer somehow through uh, planes of existence or uh, dimensions.
2: And just think about that for a second. Mm-hmm. How is Lucas creating the messages? Right. Okay, now we know how Ken Webster is doing it. He's typing into a keyboard. That's something that we can understand, but that's something that didn't really exist. I don't think there was any sort of printing press that existed in the 1500s, was there? I think everything was handwritten. Was he writing, physically writing letters Mm -hmm. onto Mm -hmm. something that then became translated on a computer screen, or did this light box have a keyboard that he understood and then would use, but he never talks about that. Right. Is he talking? Is he speaking into a machine that transcribes his words? That would be technology that he would be totally unfamiliar with. Right. There were no tape recorders then, but is that how he's doing it? These are questions never asked, never answered. We don't know how Lucas is creating the messages that Ken is reading
0: think about it it, from Lucas's perspective as somebody who lived in the, uh, let's say 1530s to uh, 1550s or so, that's kind of his era. Again, he's off with some of the details, uh, which again, makes it confusing. But the first sign to me that stuck out is that it's the file name. That's why I want Scott to describe it. And that as it's laid out or how the computer uh, is set up, it's not like, well, I guess it's a very rudimentary fashion is what you have now, let's say you go to punch up Microsoft Word or Pages, whatever you use, you have a list of options when you start off. So what you can do is, uh, you know, you can create a new folder or file. You can uh, print something. You can uh, create a new document. You can create a new folder. Here's the point. Lucas seems to know his way around a little bit with a device he would have no imagination for. He figured out how to create a new folder, label it, and then basically start a new document. What they notice is that one folder was labeled C. So as you would do it, you have a C prompt or whatever, you start to type in what you want to do. So you say create. That's one of the options, create a document or file. So what they notice is that the file name was R-E-A-T-E, like reate. So he punched in C, and then he just started typing. That's a clue here in that if you punch in C, that automatically gets you to go to create. You type in C, that goes to a new document. And then he typed out the word create. So that's the name of the document is is the rest of the letters, R-E-A-T-E. That's how he figured out how to start a new document. This guy from the 1540s. Lucas called himself, he said, well, I'm, I'm you know, he's an educated man. He's a farmer now, mostly. Uh, He was in holy orders, I believe, at some point. He studied as a, a bit as a clergyman. Or at least had some training and very good schooling. He studied Greek and Latin were his best subjects, as was a classical education back then. Probably up until the turn of, the, of this century, he's a smart guy. He says, "I'm, I am cunning. I was able to figure this out." But it also sounds like somebody gave him maybe a quick start guide. You know what I'm saying? Like he's that's a lot to Gronk. For a guy who's just really like, well, I make I make ale, and yes, I've I read the classics. It's uh... Gronk is a football player. I know that. I also say, uh, instead of swag, it sounds too thin to me. I like schwag. Uh, you're
1: so, you're, just, like, you're okay. just like my son. I'm like, you're not saying that right. And he's like, I like it better that way. I was like, okay. That's exactly great. right. And
0: more power to him <laughs> because guess what? Shakespeare, they're not exactly neologisms, but he played with the language. The language was was pretty new here. So you have roots in uh, Germanic languages. Uh, you have French coming in. Probably a little bit, uh, a bit of the... Uh, the indigenous languages of Britain uh, being an influence, and it's shifting now. From there's Old English, there's Middle English, and now we're getting into Modern English. Remember that band, <laughs> Shakespeare is a said like uh, was it doorknob? He kind of created that from door and knob or door nail. Eyeball, it said that he essentially kind of invented that word from eye and it's a ball. So language is being played around here, but language is very important in this story because. There are some things that Lucas describes that still have no equivalent.
2: What I find is really weird, like a weird decision on the part of Ken Webster, is to try to communicate with Lucas by imitating Old English. Right. At a certain point, you know, they're getting messages. Now they're writing back. They want to provoke more communication. So Ken is writing me, but he's not saying, hi, my name's Kev, Ken Webster. It's 1985 right. where I am. I'm sitting in my kitchen and What the hell is going on? He's not using modern colloquialisms. Now now he's sitting down and going, well, um, well, my goodly man, you know? And it's like, (laughs) why are you doing that? This seems to be confusing the issue needlessly. Why are you pretending to... Talk because isn't that part of the information that Lucas would be getting? Is like, well, how do you talk in the future? And it's like, oh, well, they still say things like my goodly man, and you know, it's but no, but we don't. Do you really think that's going to make it easier for Lucas to understand? It's a weird leap of logic that again plays into this notion of what text do you believe? Because now is Lucas showing other people? Imagine if Lucas wrote a book about his experiences Mm -hmm. oh and then later he says that that's exactly what he's going to do or is doing but what is he saying to his friends and is he showing them the messages that he's getting from Ken Webster? And they're coming out in this sort of weird imitation of old English, which is almost like when you go to a foreign country, but you can't speak the language. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you don't speak French. So you just talk to them with a French accent. I mean, it's weirdly
0: <laughs> and, and, louder. Yes. and
2: illogical. Yeah, slower and
0: louder. But here's the thing, going back to, you know, what is Lucas's perspective at this point? Of course, Ken and Deb John and Nick are wondering how does he see himself because at first you know when you first read this it's like well obviously he's a ghost right i mean he's dead uh this is 1540 so he's uh you know you're talking to a spirit right like wait a second when he says i have much to do uh before the sabbath i must plant me barley and and uh, and make me ale you're wondering it's like why do you need to do that you're dead give take a rest man it's like no he's Going about his life as if he were alive. And that's what they realize. Like, no, no, no. Is he he's is he wondering that if we're dead and that we're ghosts? Because from his perspective, this must be a demon box and we're spirits, right? Like that's why he's not trusting. So he's wondering, are we dead in in 1984? But no, he thinks he's alive. And now he believes that we are alive. Okay, so he knows that we are alive, that somehow we are communicating through time. As he says in in a later message, it is if. We, you, Ken, uh, and I are the front page and the back page of a history book, and our pages have been joined so that we are both opposite sides of the same book. And in between, all that history has been sandwiched together. He's starting to understand where he is and how this all works, but I think someone has given him some pointers.
2: I'm Steve Holloway of the Haunted UK podcast. And when I'm not up to my neck in cursory research, I'm listening to astonishing legends. So if you believe any of this at all, you'll start to listen right now before it's too late. So let's get back to the show.
1: I want to point something out in that one long message that I read from them where he talks about the cheese and it's Cheshire's cheese, not Chester. Chester is the little town, but Cheshire cheese would be what we referred to. And also a quick, I've gotten a point where I can... Check things on the fly. The a quick note: the the Gutenberg press was invented in 1430, so it was around. By the way, there was the press was in the picture by this point. Okay, but it's not like down on the corner.
0: What Lucas has, and again, I'm taking this uh, from the the blog about this, and this is the author Nick in that blog. Did you cite it yet? I have not cited it. It is called Mercurius Politicus, uh, which was a uh, an old time (laughs) was it was a contemporary newspaper of sorts. It's Mercurius Politicus dot wordpress.com. He says a blog in parentheses, mostly about early modern history. And this is specifically talking about ghost in the machine. He does a very good job laying out the basics of the story much better than we did. And then he talks about really, he says, well, I'm not going to talk about if this is all true or if this is paranormal or if the messages are real. Let's look at this as a bit of literature, as a narrative, as a manuscript. So what he says though, is that in Lucas's time, he would have been much more adept at the various sources of trustworthy and untrustworthy information sources and narratives he would have had uh, lots of manuscripts to go over textbooks or of, of sorts would have large columns on the side where the the reader could make notes and annotations and people were borrowing texts from other and creating pastiches And that gets printed up sometimes. So there's a big difference between the printed word at the time, written manuscripts, people's own notes. And what Nick's point is that perhaps Lucas was much more adept at getting a lot of weird sources of information and making sense of it and being okay with these varying narratives than we give him credit for or that we are able to do today. Because today we expect a trustworthy narrator... From a very linear source, beginning, middle, end, quoted sources, it's all laid out, and it all makes sense. We're not used to uh, getting a bunch of um, different various sources. What Scott and I found out, when you go do some deep research on a subject and you find an article, you realize that this person just borrowed part of a wiki entry, slapped it in, didn't give them credit. Also, uh, three other articles, because they're passing off the same bad information, You know whether it's laziness or they just didn't know. They're just borrowing stuff, and what you end up with is that somebody nowadays reads something and they think like, well, this has got to be true, right? This article here on this new health fad.
2: It's like, no, that's borrowed misinformation from about six different sources who all got it wrong. So what you're saying is that Lucas had access to books. Mm Mm-hmm. And he got knowledge from books. He went to a, a university. Right.
1: He made a big deal about reading that he loved reading.
2: Right. He's not coming from a culture that was purely um, verbal storytelling. Right. He was familiar with a book where a story is told in a linear fashion or information is given in a linear mm-hmm. fashion. And I think that did change the way people looked at life and time. Yes. You know um the author Lee Child who writes the Jack Reacher mm-hmm. novels. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So this was like in 1999 when I had found the first one. I think he'd only written one or maybe two, but I found the first one in paperback and I started reading it and it's an adventure story. I mean it's a you know mystery crime thriller and it's a really great book. It's called uh Killing Floor and oh, uh, you yeah.
1: Know, yeah, I've heard of that. Definitely
2: recommend yeah. you. I mean it's a bestseller, you know, you've yeah. probably heard of it and But it's one of those stories where big surprises, big twists, you're following a mystery, but there's a lot of action. Things happen, right? So I'm reading the book and then I'm on vacation and my father-in-law is with me and sees me reading that book. And he's like, what the hell are you reading? I'm like, oh, this is an amazing book. So then he goes down to the drugstore and buys a copy and starts reading (laughs) it. And over the period of our vacation, I'm ahead of him, but he's catching up. Mm -hmm. And so I'm reading stuff. And he's behind me by about 100, 150 pages. And for the first time, I really thought, boy, this is odd because, like, I'm weirdly ahead of him in time. Yeah. Like, I know things that are going to happen that he doesn't know yet. Right. Yes. And when you're reading, you can have that experience. But other people have said, and Jeffrey Kripal talks about this a lot. The, the professor of comparative religion who is also, you know, studies the paranormal and talks to and about all the things we
0: love. I made a point to mention him in part two of our Watsika series because I knew oh. that that would prick up your ears and uh, you oh, would definitely. dig it. And, and that's how we learned about him. But he also t- writes a lot about which figures in this story a little bit, the paranormal and the supernatural and eroticism.
2: Oh, a lot. Oh, he gets into that. Yeah, you oh, you have sure. passions
0: here because let's say that uh, Lucas starts to take an eye towards young maiden Debbie, who's 19, keep in mind. And that has a separate little
2: side thing where he's,
0: you know, <laughs> hey, uh, women are pretty good looking, uh, you know, in, in the uh, 400 years from now. So... Uh,
2: yeah, these things do tend to overlap. But then the, the notion that a written text allows you to do a lot of things that are considered paranormal it allows mm-hmm. you to time travel, it allows you a certain amount of telepathy. Yes. Because in a written text, you are reading the communicated thoughts of somebody from a different time. Right. Right. And that's central to what this book is talking about. This book should be studied by people like us, the paranormalists, and it should also be studied by those who simply study texts and how information is conveyed Mm -hmm. in various ways, but certainly through writing. While it never acknowledges it, that's what this book is really about.
1: Yeah. Two things I wanted to touch on real quick as we're moving through, because we are staying sort of linear to the story here, which I think is cool. Going back to The section that I read that had all the details about the cheese and everything, they mentioned, or I should say Lucas, mentioned Richard Wishall. you know, his big farm that he's saying, oh, his farm is huge. He can let fields lie fallow over the course of four years. So then later he says, well, Ken says, look, Debbie was more interested in this than I am. And he is the reluctant participant as the author of the book. (laughs) He says at the top of the book somewhere, I don't have it marked, but he's like, I didn't pick the paranormal, the paranormal picked me. And that's how he got soaked into this. But what happens is here on page 37, he says, Debbie took more interest than me in that first message. I began to feel uncomfortable, stifled by the heating system. She found Richard Wishall, I think, or maybe his father. But don't expect to find a reference about this. We weren't interested enough to keep proper files or folders on the affair. So just now, while you two were droning on about all kinds of stuff, I found this, (laughs) this paper, or it's from a book and uh, let me just take a look here. The book is called Four Centuries of Cheshire Farming Systems from 1500 to 1900.
2: Yes. I love right. that book. By the way, that is second only to <laughs> killing four.
1: It is it a living text.
2: So this is boiler,
0: page turner.
1: Yeah. yeah. George Edwin Fussell, F-U-S-S-E-L-L, which coincidentally is the uh. first two names of my father's father, my grandfather, and my father, Wow, and that's, Edwin. that's odd. Four Centuries of Cheshire Farming Systems. Look this up Again, there was a dispute, possibly one of many, about the enclosure of waste at Church Home in 1538, year tracks, when mm-hmm. Sir Robert Needham brought a complaint in the courts setting out that all of his ancestors had been seized of the manor of Church Home, Chester, and of certain waste grounds belonging there unto of late when certain persons, i.e., Thomas Jackson, Roth Jackson, R-A-U-F-F, Richard Wishall, Mm. Edmund Jackson, John Smith, it goes on, et cetera, et cetera. The next paragraph says, The Richard Wishall, who was party to this dispute, lived at Lee's in the county of Chester and died early in the reign of James I. The inventory of his goods, dated July 1604, includes 16 cattle, 2 oxen, 2 steers, 5 kine, or keen, I'm not sure what that is, 2 bullocks and 1 cow sterk, 1 heifer and 3 calves, which formed a small dairy herd. He had two mares and one horse colt, 23 sheep, two Ooh. hogs, and two shoots. Corn in the field included wheat and rye, barley and oats. Corn in the house included French wheat, possibly buckwheat, barley, malt, beans, and oats. Unfortunately, no quantities are stated, so no closer guess at the farming can be made than it must have been on a four-course rotation of fallow.
0: That tracks.
1: It is a perfect match, and yeah. I found this while we were talking. Wow. It's giving
0: me chills a little bit. So
2: yeah. You see, that's why Forrest and I get into these long tirades. So I can look stuff up <laughs> while you're doing <laughs> time.
0: Mostly about cheese. Yeah, but, and uh, I, the
1: yeah. other thing I want to point out, because we said it, but we didn't really mention it, is he mentions my queen is Catherine Parr. She was the mm-hmm. last of Henry VIII's six wives. So this is a Henry VIII uh, is the king at the time. Then the very next thing I want to say about this. So she found that. Ken's saying in the book, you know, she Debbie found that dude, but we didn't keep notes on it. Whatever. So that's why I looked it up. We found him. We've got the year. He's got a big farm. He's clearly got money. It tracks almost exactly with how Lucas describes him in one of these
0: very early messages. But- wasn't he wrong, Lucas, about the actual year and Henry VIII's reign saying that, the, you know, my king yeah. is 46 years old, 6 and 40 or whatever. That age would be wrong for the there time he was There were all saying.
1: kinds of chronological things that didn't quite work out. Yes. Right. So okay. that's definitely true. Things are coming and going. And honestly, when I marked this to read it to you, I didn't even get to the part where it said it could be fallow on a four like that. Mm-hmm. I learned right, that as right. I read it to you just now. The only other thing I was going to say is this leads to Debbie sort of saying, There's has to be a way of proving this. How can we prove that this is going on? And that leads me to my thought of Mothman and all the stuff that we talk about of getting trapped in this. I've got to prove this, or you know, whether it's me in the DR60 in the Sally House or whatever, <laughs> you have that personal experience. It's like, I got to make people believe this happened, or Ronnie in Delphus in Kansas, with the UFO. And it's like, I saw the UFO. And that's what I think gets people into lying or fabricating things because they only have the one personal experience and then they want people to believe them so bad they extend it or whatever, which is not what I'm saying is happening here at all. But what I'm saying is there's that trap and all these stories, they seem to start with that thing. It's like, oh my God, how can we prove this? So I think that's interesting. But then by the same token, I just read something that seems to track factually with one of the early messages from him.
2: Well, what's interesting is that he says, you know, we were not being extremely vigilant and uh, checking out every last word of these messages and then compiling documents to then present to an authority figure who would then completely validate the experience we had. The very tone of the book itself is more of a memoir of this weird time. He spends a lot of time talking about his moods and it's like, Mm
1: -hmm, this mm -hmm. stuff
2: became what, you know, started to really scare me. Yeah. And then it created a, a dark mood and atmosphere in the house that affected my relationship with Deb. And then it got boring. And then I <laughs> yes. just wanted it to stop. But then it didn't. And then it got interesting again. Yeah. And and he, he takes you through it in such a way. And that's an easy part to sort of miss because we read it as anyone would. Like, well, now wait, now did this really happen? And what could you check? And how could you double check? But what he's saying is it was a really weird thing And here's how it made Mm -hmm. me feel. And he's not bending over backwards to prove this to you, the reader, at all. Really, he's simply saying, look, here's what I got. Some messages we simply lost. I didn't have time to write them down. And then the file disappeared. Many of these messages had to be physically copied off the monitor screen because Mm -hmm. there was no printer.
1: Yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
2: And I'll say one other odd thing. I don't know if these exist at all, but I'm very frustrated because the book itself has that little center section where it's photographs. Yes, yes. Yeah. But no one ever took a picture of the monitor when it had the or writing the computer. on it. I would yeah. give anything to see a picture of the monitor with these words written on them. It wouldn't prove anything, but it'd no. be cool no. to look at.
1: No, but you could. You know what you could do is show it to a psychic. Honestly, yes, yeah, we, we right. should show some of these to our friend Lori. See if yes. she gets anything off of these. Uh, the, oh, yes. he also mentions in that long one that I read, the red sandstone, which he had found and uncovered under the house during the renovations, red sandstone blocks, which are in the very first picture of the picture section of the book. Mm-hmm. and But he also said anyone can see those. They're in a pile out in the yard. I'm remodeling. You know, If it is a hoax, someone well, could drive by and see that.
2: Well, theoretically
1: guys, if somebody had four centuries of farming which came out in 1955 they could know about richard wishall too so that was pre-existing knowledge
2: okay but but the fact that they're in two different time periods yeah but they're both alive right did it occur to you at a certain point that they should have done the bill and teds excellent adventure trick yeah <laughs> <laughs> couldn't he have just said to Lucas, couldn't he have written a message? Saying, I'm going
1: to bury this under the house right
2: yeah, now. Yeah, It's like, Lucas, go bury a very particular item
1: under yes, the house that's great or, idea. or in a
2: specific spot. And now I'm going to go walk outside right now and look for it. Because the very fact that I'm talking to you means what I'm telling you to do, you did 400 years ago. And now I'm going to go find that thing.
1: That would be amazing. That would be great. And there is something like that, as you know, that happens in the book, but we haven't found the other end of it. And that is that Lucas eventually comes to say that he's going to write a book about everything that's happening in all these communications. And in theory, we'll be able to get this book 400 years later, 400 plus now, and find it. And in the book, he will talk about all the communications that he had with Ken and Deb and Peter and the other people that they brought into the picture that we'll be talking about in 1985 and this will be proof that the communication was real but the book as of right now has not been found however there's other players in this that are going to come up as we're talking that wouldn't necessarily want the book to be found
2: okay now just for fun when you think about it and it's such a delicious piece of sort of you know imagination when you think Well, what if sometime in the next few months, this book is found? An actual book from the 1500s that is now a weird companion piece to The Vertical Plane. It's the same story told from Lucas's point of view. And the book is hundreds of years old and is finally found. Wouldn't that just prove everything? Or wouldn't you immediately go, ah, he found the book before and he wrote, Oh and that was a piece of fiction. Yes. And Ken Webster wrote a fictional modern day counterpart to it using that book as a guide. Isn't that exactly what you would have to say? Yeah. Yeah,
1: but it would be that would be one of the most brilliant hoaxes of all time. I would just <laughs> I would believe yeah. the hoax just to give him credit for pulling it off. That I'm just gonna be like, okay, you win. You won the hoax game. That's what
0: Ken's point was, is that if somebody found this book. Then you could say, well, it depends on what's in the book, what, what he says. If it's just a book by some guy named Lucas and you find it, basically, that's your proof that somebody else found this book before. Uh, somebody found these characters. They've been poking around the library. And actually, they went to the library to see uh, and asked if anybody had been looking in the you know, genealogy sections or the old history. And they said someone had. And they did. Yeah. One person they said had. One they person they had. They didn't know who it was. But if you found Lucas's book, that would prove that, uh, well, this guy just found this book. He gleaned all this information and then he conned us with it. So it's the long con. But why? To make us all look foolish? To make a group of 10 people peripherally involved look foolish? Well, you don't know. So there's two ways to look at that book. You know what I'm saying? this it, it, Like with everything, every piece of evidence you point out can go both ways. Well, there you go. It's proof that it's a hoax. Somebody found this. They're using this as information. Proves nothing on the flip side, well, there you go. You have a book here. Say like the, uh, you look at the Voynich manuscript and it's just like, you old astonishing legends. And uh, there's rich and talking to Scott, talking to Forrest. And it's like, <laughs> wait, that can't be real. Like that's a modern thing, but it's written on vellum from the 1400s. That doesn't make any sense, but obviously it's faked. If you're a skeptic, it's gotta be fake. People do fake manuscripts. And they're very good at it. I can't remember what it was. It might
1: have been what was that collector, the Mormon guy that, that we just saw the series on, who was faking docu- historical documents? Murder among Mormons? Yeah, I think, was I the think there was some procedures that came forth in that that were really fascinating. And also that movie that um, a friend of my wife's directed that Melissa McCarthy was in, where she's right.
2: Oh, oh, will will you ever forgive me? Right. Yes, yeah, that's a
1: great movie. Um, uh, Can Marie you Heller, ever forgive director, me? Or she's... something? Yeah. So the point is, what I'm saying is the processes that come forward, the murder among the Mormons, he was faking this stuff that was like really upsetting the dogma of the church and Mm -hmm. all that kind of stuff. And he knew exactly what to say, but he was manufacturing paper using ancient methods. And it's the same thing that happens, and it happens in the art world too. These people do have very sophisticated ways to do that. So to your point, Rich, You can go back and say, well, this is how it was made. If you can find the old ingredients and apply the old process, then you'd have to get into some very sophisticated chemical tests to determine, oh, this pigment is more recent. This ink is more recent. Or, well, you know what? This paper does match vellum from the 1500s. But it has atmospheric elements on it that are clearly from the 2000s or something like that. So there there are right. ways to drill down on it, but you, mm-hmm. that's a really good point that you're making.
2: If it was found in a place among a collection at a museum, right. it, yeah. it almost feels like there would be a way to pretty conclusively prove that Ken Webster could never have possibly had access. Couldn't have gotten to, to it. <laughs> Just some ancient manuscript locked beneath the British Museum, you know, I mean, <laughs> it's... where you assume that things are being controlled and people understand who's coming in and out of the place and all of that stuff. But every time you think of a way that you would conclusively prove this actually happened, you can immediately disprove it. And that's what's so frustrating. There's no card. It's like
0: uh, this book is
2: overdue, uh, and a, a, <laughs> a, a shilling a, a
0: week. You've now owe three hundred million pounds on this overdue book. There's no card or record. The college admissions, I believe, either part of Chester or um, I can't remember where he uh, Lucas said he got some of his schooling.
2: Really quickly, I just want to give a shout out because I feel morally we must. Yes. Uh, the director of the film Can You Ever Forgive Me? Yeah. is Marielle Heller. And the screenplay oh. is written by Nicole yes, and, Center. Yes, and uh, Jeff uh, Witty. Yeah. Just because you know when people talk about Mothman prophecies or Titans or whatever, I <laughs> you know I always love it when they actually do mention the director and especially yes. the writer. Yes. That's the creative team behind. It. The and I,
1: I'm i so glad you did that, Rich. I really need to do that because Mariel Heller is married to Yorma Chacon, who's been a guest on our show. He's ah. part of Lonely Island. He played oh, Chaka. right. Yes. And uh, we've known both of them for a while. She's amazing. I love her as a person. And also, she didn't really start directing until after we had crossed paths with her. I think she's an amazing director. I thought that mm-hmm. film was just really well done. So I, I just am I'm so happy for her. So. Thank you for pointing that out. I did say her name a few minutes ago, but I didn't mention Nicole, mm-hmm. because Nicole also, I, I know my wife knows Nicole of Center somehow, but anyway, so thank you for clearing that up.
2: My pleasure.
1: I can turn to another interesting point here, which is, is this what I thought? This is on page 46 of the book, a section that I wrote all over. This page, I'm going to tear it out and make it into an NFT. It's got so many notes, but... Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> No, Uh, No. let's see here. So here we go. At this point, we haven't made this clear. They start interacting. And the way that they do this is they sit down and they type a message into the computer and try to do it in the old English style like Rich was saying. So they'll sit down and type a message. And then it's not like letters start typing back. And it, the funny thing that came to me was was in Ghost when he's like the mm-hmm. bad guys in the office and Patrick Swayze's like punching the keys to put up the message. Like, I know what you did or whatever. It's so right. great. But like, oh, yeah. that's not what's happening here, though. The, the keys aren't depressing themselves. It doesn't happen right in front of them. Turns out there's this whole process. And usually, it's so crazy. It's kind of like, I think about... This is a weird analogy, but, you know, people who follow us on social media know that my wife and I have a, a relatively new puppy in the family. We got her in January, and she's a rescue. And, and anytime you get a rescue, dog or cat, it takes a while to get to know them. And, and with dogs in particular, you got to teach them how to walk and all this stuff, and it's taken a long time to figure out – when she needs to go, how often, all that stuff. And you're like, am I ever going to get this? It's months of like going at the wrong time, turds in the dining room, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> then suddenly it just all syncs up. And you don't even know how you got there. You're just like you're in the rhythm with the animal or whatever or, or the plant you're trying to keep alive or what you get into this sink. And it seems to me that in this process, that's what's happening with them, too. They're like, okay, wait now. It's like they're adjusting an aerial TV antenna from the 1950s, like trying to – can it, do you see anything? No, wait. It's right, right there. Right there. I can see it. So it's like they start to experiment with their procedure. And what they find out is that it seems like that Deb has to be in the house in a relaxed state. So a lot of times what she would do, she would go into the living room and sit down by the fireplace or she could go sort of kind of to sleep and and into a dreamlike state. And that what the other thing that would have to happen is that Ken would have to leave. <laughs> so he would have to leave the house and he would go out and they had a term for this. They called it ghost busting mm-hmm. and they would go, which was right around when the first one came out, didn't it? What year did Ghostbusters 1 come out? I, I think they, they must have taken it from that. It might, it Summer was, of 83. All right. So 1983. So yeah, it had just come out. It's hugely popular. So they're calling it ghost busting. That's what they label this process, which isn't technically really ghost. They're not trying to catch ghosts or kick them out of their house. They're just trying to get messages from him. So in the process of the ghost busting, Ken will leave. He like goes to a pub. (laughs) He goes walking around. Sometimes he would just sit in the car in the driveway, like this guy that tried to sell me something for my house once. He would just sit out there. We'd be like, we're going to think about it. We'll get back to you in a day or two. And the guy was like, no, I can. I've can. i got a couple hours. I'll just sit out here. When you guys decide, I'll come back in.
0: Oh, I don't like that.
1: No, I didn't like it either. Pretty <laughs> he, pretty soon after that, he got the middle finger and has to leave. So, But the point is, they're developing this system, and this is what gets the messages to come in. Right. And it doesn't always work. Sometimes they leave for two hours. Sometimes they leave for four hours. Or he leaves for two or four, and then she's staying there trying to relax. She'll have a glass of wine, sit by the fire, whatever. And then there'll be a message. Other times, they do that two or three times. Nothing comes for a couple of days. But they keep doing it. And that goes to your whole point, Rich, of it becoming like this sort of mundane part of the process where just like, I'm like, I didn't ask for this, but I got to do all this work over and over and over again to keep it going.
2: Right. And then, and then of course, our skeptical friends will say, oh, okay, so Ken leaves the house, Deb writes the messages.
1: Right. But she wasn't always there. So that's the thing. They started out doing that, but she wasn't always there because later they get to testing all these things and they would all leave the house and the messages would still come. So, but listen to this. So here's this little section here. So what they're doing is they would type the messages out. They go away. They come back. They either would look for a new file or they would look at the same file that they typed their message into. And the reply would be there, but sometimes it would be so far down. It would be like 30 blank pages down. So he would have to go in there and scroll down. And he talks about how like when you got to the bottom of a page or no, when you got to the end of the document, the computer would beep. It'd be like beep. And so even from the other room, they would know if they heard that beep and there was no message, like they would get deflated because it's like, oh, there's the beep. And they're not saying whoever's in there checking it is not saying there's a message. So they would have to scroll down, find the message. Sometimes it would be right there. Sometimes it would be long. It would be short. But it would always be in In this case of Lucas anyway. It would always be in this old English. And we say Lucas anyway because there's, you know, there's another character coming forward here in the future. but. In this one particular section, the, and the thing that I wanted to mention and talk to you, uh, you guys about, they're trying to figure out what each other is and what's happening here. And this is the point at which Lucas may be starting to get into trouble for getting these communications. My pleasant fool, uh, he's saying to, uh, he's saying that to, addressing that to Ken. My servant thinks you are all in my head. He says, I act like a seer, but I know you live now. He also says that my blood is poisoned, and that it is my weak hinged imagination. But I am not mad, I think, and I told him so. I also said it is like fairy gold, that he should keep it secret until I write a book. And that's what he says there. So he's clearly going to, want to write a book about it. And then he's, uh, Ken writes in, in the book here in um, The Vertical Plane on page 46, what a prospect. Either he was dead and we were alive, or he was alive and we were more than 400 years from the date of our conceptions. In fact, We were alive, and so was he. He thought it fairy gold, this communication. He was making notes of it for a book. For such a book to refer to these events in recognizable detail, should this book still exist, would suggest the most overwhelming or coincidence. This sort of coincidence would deafen one's thoughts or prove us fools for even considering it. Lucas was convinced that he wasn't mad and that we lived, as indeed he did, physically tied to a human body. And then goes on to say, endless puzzles arrange themselves before us. The past is another country, a country without entry visas. Mm. The last part of his message gave an answer as to why he was here if he was born in Somerset. I came to settle here because of the excellent pasture for which at one time I had to pay no tax, unlike my relations. Now things have changed for the unfavorable king's sheriff does plague me so. It seems he is here every hour. I have had some mishaps with your hidden device, which does not place my words but it is no more undone. I think it is too agreeable for me at times, but it does amuse. I fish for herrings and salmon in the D, spelled like John D, D D-E-E, and sometimes in Flicker's brook. Tell the friend John with whom you spoke that I know much about fishing. I think you are jesting when you talk about the horseless cart tiger. It is good that we can be carefree and joke like this, Lucas. The horseless cart tiger being um, Ken's jaguar that
2: he tried to explain.
1: Lucas okay. can't wrap his head around the car, right? So he's, he calls it the cart tiger.
2: Right. <laughs> On Titans, uh, one of my friends, uh, Brian Edward Hill, we're, we're always talking about this trope where somebody from the past or, or another planet comes to our world. I think this happens in Thor. Yeah. And it's called What Manner of Horse is This? Yes. Yes. <laughs> they always come up to the car. What manner of horse is this? You know? And so we're always talking about a very do... unfrozen caveman lawyer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right yeah. exactly, yeah. exactly. Is Let's the sun do...
0: eating the moon? I don't right. know.
2: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what manner of horse is this? This, this yeah. cart tiger. Now here's another question that just occurred to me. When did the idea of writing a book about these events occur to Ken Webster? before or after Lucas mentions that he's going to write a book about it? Mm-hmm. Or is that the instant where the idea occurred? When Lucas says, I'm going to write a book about this, is that in retrospect, the instant where it occurred to Ken, he should write a book about it?
1: That's a good question. Because he I don't think Ken makes that clear anywhere where he decided to do that. Because the, the reality so. is, you know, and this is a question that I always have, especially when reading about paranormal events and something uh, like this. Now, this only took place over a few months, so that makes it easier to compile the events or summarize them if you're going to write it down later. But on the other hand, it's very well documented on an almost a day-to-day basis, the different things that right. happened, which would indicate they either were keeping some kind of diary or they were planning or he was planning
2: to write about it from the jump it draws in and mentions a number of contemporary people, any one of whom, I mean, it's kind of like the Travis Walton uh, fire in the sky case, right? Any one of those people at any point could come out and say, all right, it's all a joke. It never happened. We all made it up over a bottle of wine and we all thought it was like, you know, we, we all thought we'd make a lot of money and the book would become the next Amityville horror. But as far as I can tell, that has never happened.
1: No, it and on top of that, according to the forums that uh, Forrest was referring to that we were all reading, I believe it was one of the researchers who came into the picture late in the game that we'll talk about later in part two, had said that Ken was approached and offered uh, a lot of money to option this into a film and had turned it down. The other thing is Ken Webster is nowhere. This guy, you cannot find him. And even that researcher was like, I don't know where he is. If you find him, he said in the forum, if anyone finds him, let me know.
2: If people are paying hundreds and hundreds of dollars on eBay and uh, various book search sites for this book, what that means is there's an interest in the book. And if it was republished, many people, I mean, look, uh, uh, hundreds, if not thousands of people would buy the book. That's money in Ken Webster's pocket. Yeah, That hasn't happened. No, right, right. For better or worse, this is not something Ken Webster did
1: for money. It doesn't seem that way. So that's a really good question. And Forrest, I did want to come back to the point that you were making about, you know, mistakes, because there were mistakes that were made from time to time. Uh, It actually mentions here on page 52, Peter, that's Ken's friend who is Oxford educated and the one that studied the language on behalf of them to see how accurate it was. And that's a whole nother thing. That's a part two thing that we'll, Rich, don't let me forget. We need to talk about that, like the dialect and the vocabulary. It says, Peter cut my eye a day or so later. Peter being very also involved in all this.
2: His full name is Peter Tinder. I think it's Trinder. Is it Trender or Tinder? Trinder
0: Yeah, T-R-I-N-D-E-R. Trinder. And what yeah. they've dis- discovered is that uh, Lucas has a Bristol dialect, and what's important here is that it, it hyper-localizes it in a way. At this time, the English language, as we talked about a little bit earlier, is still being formed and hammered out as it starts to transition into modern English. And there are a lot of influences. It's it's not like uh, you wake up Sunday, uh, you know, September 1st, and suddenly we're now all speaking modern English, folks. What they notice is that uh, throughout... England. Very specifically, there are there are dialects that are spoken and words are not said in different parts of the country at this time. And you can trace that by the manuscripts that, that are extant, that survive today from these various regions. And what they've determined is that the way that Lucas is speaking is the way somebody from Bristol would be speaking and some of the colloquialisms here and there. So they're nailing this down and doing a pretty good job of it for people who aren't you know, paranormal investigators, linguists, uh, like I said, they're very educated people, they're educators, but this is not their specialty as far as like, physics and time travel, all these things that, that figure into the play of the story, and also, uh, as we'll see, an overarching character, and how this turns things around and and, uh, not to jump ahead, but you get the sense that uh, what's implied is that there's somebody pulling the puppet strings here and that if Ken decided to write a book or didn't or whatever information has come out in his book was orchestrated, was influenced by all of these characters, Lucas, Ken, Deb, Peter, John, all these people that are involved in this story have been playing a part as perhaps some kind of larger experiment. Hi, I'm Holly,
2: and you're listening to Astonishing Legends with Scott, Phil Spook, and Forrest Boojas. Now back to the show.
1: So Forrest, one of the things that you mentioned earlier, there's anachronisms. There's things that come up that don't make sense. Now, we were able to corroborate, and maybe we're the first people that ever did that, That's kind of exciting, although I don't know. I do know that other podcasts have absolutely covered this. Big shows have covered this. I I have not heard any of those. I want to make that clear. We're shooting from the hip on this. But uncovering that thing about Richard Wishall, I thought that was pretty cool because it lined up exactly with this message that's coming in, which you may be thinking, oh, if this is a hoax... Then that's uh, known historical data. Somebody scraped it up and somehow they're getting that message onto the computer. And that's a line of thought you should be thinking because you're, you know, we know there's a lot of people listen to this show. They love to entertain this stuff, but mm-hmm, they think mm-hmm. all of it's fake. They think it's all hoaxed. And, so and that's they're, fine. Yeah, Yeah, that's fine. And they're trying to work out, all right, how's this hoax working? And that's, you know, something that we're going to talk about moving forward. So in terms of anachronisms or a mistake... There was a university that Rich made a reference to a few minutes ago. We didn't mention when it, you know, the first time it was mentioned in the book, but it was Jesus College, and it it is a real university. Peter came and said to Ken, you know what? It still has to be a hoax, Ken. The college, Jesus College, is Elizabethan, founded in 1571. It's too late for our man. So that is uh, one thing there. It's like, why is he mentioning this college that would have probably happened after he died? And that comes to this whole thing of like, I call it a a blurry focus situation. Mm -hmm. That when it comes down to these facts, and it's the same thing with Siren Call or any other time, there's some sort of standardized test that the two parties are giving each other. It's like, how do I know you're real? Well, how do I know you're real? Well, how, in this case, it's more of a two-way street than it usually is. But it's in saying, well, these years aren't right. If you lived at this point and this point, this university wasn't even founded yet. And the point that I'm going to make is, I think it's possible that this is a time travel scenario, if you believe any of this at all, but that the timelines can be different, that they can be a little bit different, that things are similar, but they drift back and forth and they they get out of sync. And uh, I think Forrest is – we're probably going to talk a little bit about the Loki series if, for those of you that have seen it coming up in the future. But if I don't remember if you, if you remember the graphics they show in that about how the timelines – have to stay on this stream or they get it and they turn into this big crazy tangled tree branch mess of all kinds of problems happening.
2: That's something that uh Stephen King goes into in 11 63
1: hmm Oh, okay. Okay.
2: About how if you time travel, you're building up these sort of these sort of side by side threads and that they can get tangled. But what was what's interesting to me is that, you know, earlier in the book, he says, well I mentioned jesus college lucas says as a way of testing you can to see if you're truly from the future because if you were you would know that jesus college doesn't exist but what's weird is that we say decades later then there was a jesus college right. so how could lucas have known that or vice versa or what are we talking yeah. about alternate timelines we're gonna get timelines? to
0: that yeah did he guess yeah this just like Let me throw the word Jesus in there in college, and uh, I'll bet there's you know there will never be a college called Jesus College. Guess
2: what? There was. Or that's like me saying I attended Forest Burgess University. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Now we all know that that is only an online entity. Well. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and it's a fifteen-year program. Yeah, it
0: has not been shut down yet.
2: <laughs> well, Liz, I think I got. I think I got my fifty thousand dollars worth.
0: Oh, I, that's right. I have to mail you uh, a digital certificate, which is an NFT, which you can trade to other people who got uh, shrifted on my uh, diplomas. Yes, yeah. I
2: want that, and I want the bobblehead too.
0: Well, here's the thing, though. The, here's the other possibility: what
1: if that message came from someone else who was aware of when that university existed? Right. There's also that possibility. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. The other, yeah. the other thing that's interesting to me, too, is they're having a hard time geographically identifying things. And mm-hmm. they go back and forth about this. And it's hard to tell if this is confirmation bias. But they get this information that, you know, the village is described. There's actually a drawing made. And that's the other thing that we haven't touched on yet. There are messages coming through in the real world, handwritten messages right. in the form of chalk, on parts of the house, on the structure, on the floor, on the wall. There's also messages ultimately that wind up being left on paper. And the description of the cart tiger or the car that where Ken shares the message of how the car works, he decides that he's going to show a picture to Lucas. I don't know how they even thought this would work, but they left the picture in the house, in Ken's house, and the picture disappeared. There's a photograph Mm -hmm. of his Jaguar. Picture disappears, for I think a couple of days, I can't remember, but it's gone for a while. They don't know where it is. And if somebody's hoaxing, then that person stole the picture. Then the picture comes back. And at that point, at that with, you know, with not we can't read every reference that's made in the book. So I'm not even going to look for this one. I can't remember where it was. But Lucas sends a message and he basically says, Well, that's an interesting cart tiger, but it's not going anywhere without a horse in front of it. <laughs> He's like, Oh yeah, it's yeah. got wheels. I can see that it has wheels. It clearly it rolls. But what's how's it going to go? There's no horse. My horse is going to get there before it does. And so there's that sort of thing. And again, that's what it's like what you were saying, Rich, about
2: what manner of horse is this?
1: Yeah. What kind of horse is this? And that's, and I've often wondered that being car nut, I've often wondered, you know, what would happen if you took the inventor of the internal combustion engine, which, if I'm not mistaken, was uh, Daimler Benz. I'm pretty sure he's the guy that invented the engine. Mm. Uh, if you brought him, to now, and you took him for a ride in a Bugatti Chiron or some other exotic hypercar or or an electric one like the Remac, one with these incredibly fast, you know, 2,000 horsepower electric cars that look like a piece of paper on the road. They're so low to the ground. How would he even wrap his head around that? Even if he was the inventor of the car, would he? I don't know. But like this, it's interesting though, to think about in the 1500s, somebody being presented with this photo. Here's the other thing about the picture, though. The picture was, I think, left on a surface in the home. It went away for several days, and when it came back, it was charred around the edges. Mm -hmm. This happened more than once, but it it happened a couple of times, but one was with the picture of the car. The first thing that I thought about, and Forrest, you'll have to, your memory may be better than mine on this, but when- (laughs) Pikmin, He knew where I was going. I love
0: it. You well, knew I'm about where to, I was going. I'm, I'm, no, I'm about to read. Uh, I didn't even get to the... ask the
1: question. I no, didn't, I even, I didn't mention up. the episode. Yeah. I, okay. So anyway, what I was going to say, Forrest, <laughs> I guess it's pretty great because he did not, this is not in the outline and he guessed what I was about to bring up, which was about Tony Pickman in the Sally House, during the stuff that they were enduring in the Sally House, before it gets you know, to us going there and making our recording and all that stuff, that the family that experienced it, that was actually featured on sightings way back in the early, whatever, 90s or whenever that was, one of the things that happened is things were while they were living there, were disappearing and reappearing. And I seem to remember, Forrest, correct me if I'm wrong, but when they would reappear, they would be melted or like it was a plastic remote maybe that was burnt around the edges or something like that. Wasn't that the case?
0: You just stole all my thunder. I had a <laughs> whole thing I was going to talk about here, about burning and singeing. Uh, well, we but... can
1: reframe no, it. Go. No, 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 no. Yeah. no, no
0: thank you. My, my brother, you and I make up uh, one, uh, like two-thirds of our brain and enriches our hippocampus. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Whatever, like the guiding, the part that actually knows about... Story. Okay,
2: please leave my hippocampus out of
0: this. <laughs> the, I've been really uh, binging uh, the series Miracles. We're going to talk about that later. Mostly uh, really enjoying Rich's uh, DVD extras where he explains the origins and, and the the making of the series Miracles, which is fantastic, by the way. Uh, but he was talking about the mythology. But a big idea, and, and this series Miracles is full, nonstop, all big ideas, in a great way in that, uh, well, that's a huge concept. Much like this book we're talking about is laying out huge concepts, mind-blowing things as it goes along, and each chapter is a new one, and a new one, and a new one, and it all ties together. When you talk about a series uh, like the X-Files or Miracles is that there's a mythology here. It's the uh, the world that encompasses the story and the characters that we're talking about, and it informs it. In filmic terms, it would be called the mise-en-scene, and that is the world that occupies the rest of the outside of the the cinema frame that you cannot see. So when you're watching a movie, say you're watching uh, Lord of the Rings or The Hobbit, and you're you're watching Frodo on screen, and they're doing this and that, and they're in the Shire, what the mise-en-scene is is the world outside that exists that you are allowing yourself to be a part of, or your imagination to be a part of. So as the story unfolds, we see like, oh, Frodo, they, they got big dirty feet. That's funny. Uh, there's a magic ring or this and that's happening. What you don't know is that there's a universe that this is tapping into. So as, uh, as it's said in the book, home is behind the world ahead. What you're being informed is that there is a giant universe out there of, of orcs and talking trees and trolls and all this magic that's happening that you're going to get informed about, but we don't know it yet, but that's part of the mythology of it. In this story, the vertical plane, as the story's unfolding, it starts with weirdo messages coming from a computer, probably a hoaster, right? Of course. And then what you learn is that there's a mythology to this. It's tapping into the realms of the paranormal, the supernatural, and there's a difference. To sci-fi and a bigger realm of the universe, and who's controlling it? Who's who controls time? Does anybody? What is time? What are tachyons? What's physics? How do we know this stuff? Is any of it real? And and what would a higher intelligence think about all this and have a role in it? And you start to wonder how is this all connected? And this story, the vertical plane, connects it all, but you still can't understand it very well. So to kind of steer the idea back to what Scott was talking about with the singeing, remember I said early on that the plastic ties that they found that were wrapping up the six pack of lager, they found was undone and the ends were melted and singed. And they thought like some drunk bloke is coming in and melting these with probably a lighter or something. And he's stacking the bottles. And and then some of the weird stacking was so precarious. Like, I think if you touch it, it all fall down. So that was really weird. Like, well they're whoever's doing this is taking a lot of time for a stupid prank.
1: Yeah, they continued to be more and more impressed by the different stackings almost to the point where they were laughing about it, which I loved. They're just like coming home and it's very much like that vibe in in Poltergeist, the original Poltergeist movie when they come in and they're like, "Oh my god, that's amazing." And he's like, "Oh yeah." yeah? And then he opens the door to the bedroom and it's like a swirling <laughs> galaxy of floating craziness. Yeah. that sort of mundane experience that they get to place back to that point of, of the part of the story that feels real is about how they're, it's becoming kind of work. And it's like all these messages and all these things they have to do to get them. And
2: it's getting kind of,
1: to a certain extent, it's boring or expected.
2: Is this interplay and a shared language and a shared sense of expectation, it's like a game they would play. They would leave the house and then come back and something would be there, stacked up. Right. Um, a message would be on the computer, but it would never happen in front of them. They had to leave that Turn your back, close your eyes. Simon says, now turn around.
1: And on top of that, there were several messages that were cut off and even, and they would, the message would say, Lucas would say on the other end of it, someone came in and it got interrupted. Mm-hmm. Sorry. So like no one could even get in the kitchen near the computer and, or it would stop working.
2: Which is really weird, and that Lucas had some sort of knowledge of that. How would Lucas interpret that? Was he given a set of instructions? Okay, now when you want to send these messages to the future, to Ken Webster, you have to wait until everyone's out of the house, or at least everyone's away from the computer. And then you can do it. But if anyone comes near, it's going to mess it up, so you'll have to stop. I mean, is that what he was told?
0: It's a good question. But it's part of the rules. It's part of There are rules of physics of uh, metaphysics and rules of
2: spirituality in a book called the mammoth mountain poltergeist which was written by the young man who experienced it and this was Mm -hmm. all within the last 20 years uh there's this really interesting little section it's basically about a family that goes to mammoth mountain which is a ski resort in california Mm -hmm. they rent an apartment this is what a lot of people do you rent an apartment or a condo and you're there for a week, and you spend your day skiing, and uh, that, that's how you do your vacation. Well, this particular condo, poltergeist. Over the course of the few days that they're there, this, this young boy who's probably you know in his early teens, they all become aware that something weird is going on in the house. And so what he's doing is he's taking a handkerchief, and this one bedroom seems to be where all the activity takes place. So he He lays the handkerchief out on the bed, and then he closes the door, and then he waits. Then he opens it, and this little handkerchief or this little hand towel has been moved or Mm -hmm. folded or arranged. And then he closes the door again, opens the door again, and it's moved around, and it's in a new configuration. So at one point, I think the story is he sort of puts it way up on the curtains, and it's a little bit out of view. And then he leaves the room and he closes the door. And then really quickly, he opens it again, runs up, jumps on the bed, grabs up, looks at the top of the curtains to see where it is. And it's not there. And then he feels something slap his butt. And he turns around and turns around and turns around. And the towel has been tucked in his back pocket. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So this is the sort of interactive nature of poltergeist activity that sometimes happens that is the centerpiece of what's happening in the vertical plane. Yeah,
1: I couldn't agree more. And again, that comes back to something we've talked about a billion times, the whole trickster element, which is a common element that is in every story we've ever covered. It's in the siren call, it's in this, it's in mm-hmm. Skinwalker, it's in whatever, it's in that. It's in like and it, and the
0: more you try to get the proof, the trickier the trickster becomes. Right. The difference <laughs> is in this story, as we're going to see more in part 2, this trickster element is going to have a voice. And it's gonna talk to you, and you're gonna feel some personality of this trickster. I believe, and it's just like you, sir, are a jerk. So that that get to get ready for that. Getting back to how uh, Lucas views this, what is he seeing and, and feeling and hearing? Obviously, he can see a little bit, and he can hear a little bit, like a ghost. Ex- like he's having a ghost experience, or that he's the ghost. When you get back to his experience, now as we told you earlier, Ken liked to play music. And was, uh, they were thinking of actually recording some tracks maybe and getting some gigs, I think, and and uh, maybe publishing some record tracks, some music. Uh, he had a guitarist friend, a uh, good guy, the <laughs> Lazy John, not uh, ill-spirited people, but, you know, you start to get paranoid with this scenario thinking like, uh, well, Lazy John's coming over and he's, he's got his eye on Debbie a lot. And, and if he's pulling these pranks, maybe it's to make me look like a nutcase. I'm off my rocker, and uh then John suddenly looks more appealing to Debbie. Maybe that's the case. And you start wondering and, and getting paranoid. And then there was a there was another person who uh played keyboards, but basically a bit uh, as he said, a leaf in the wind. And then I think uh Nicola played the sax. So they would jam. And uh, you know, as anybody in a, a small cottage would jam the neighbors, you know, you can hear it, and uh, so could Lucas. And he says, Well, uh, this merrymaking pleaseth me, but it gets a little loud at times. It's a bit of a racket, uh, but I like it generally. Like it's amusing, whatever you're doing. And you imagine what music sounded like to him. It's not lyres and lutes and, and, and pipes. His version is different. So he's hearing this racket, but he did mention it's just like, oh, get that uh, that fair maiden Nicola to play the big brass flute or whatever it was, because that's very pleasing to me. And what he's talking about is her saxophone.
2: Yes. So he can hear the music. But what's odd about that is, I mean, just think about any rational human being. Think about you living in your house. Listeners, Mm -hmm. picture yourself living in your house right now. And then we haven't talked about how Lucas received the device on which he is, quote unquote, sending the messages, which is weird in its own right. But now you're in a house where you're aware that people from the future are living Mm -hmm. You can sometimes see them and hear the music they're making. Would you be this calm? He seems to be so sort of friendly and accepting of it. Again, it is odd to try to understand Lucas's point of view of what's happening and how it must have felt. Are, Are you saying that Ken or
0: Lucas is weirdly calm about it?
2: I think Ken is a little calm about it, although he's pretty forthcoming about when there's the bad mood, the scary right. sort of, when, we, when he sort of falls prey to fear, yeah. which of course is referenced in the very first line of the poem that was sent yeah. in the very first message. Right, But he's not seeing ghosts. He's not hearing sounds. Mm-hmm. Now what he is experiencing are footprints on the wall and things right. being stacked. And I don't know if he ever asks Lucas, hey, are you stacking up in my house? (laughs)
0: Right. First, I want to wheel this back a little bit and address the phenomenon because overall, you would call this a phenomenon of sorts, even though it encompasses so much. But let's take a look at what it encompasses and break this down a little bit and see where this fits in because it's so wild. It gets wilder. But you talk about the singeing. Well, that reminded me, as Scott said, about the Pickmans. The Pickmans claim that objects would go missing in their house. Things you wouldn't even notice for a while, like a pen or, but more noticeably, things like the remote control, which of course you're going to miss. It's like, hey, where's the remote? Uh, Nobody can find it. It's like, all right. And it's not in the couch cushions. Turns out a week later, it had showed up at the Sally house, which they had not visited. They'd moved out of it at that point. Yeah, that's the other thing. They were up the street at that point. Yeah, that's the weird connection. The stuff
1: was disappearing from their home home a block and a half away, and turning up at the Sally House.
0: If you want to believe that, even if you don't, doesn't matter. Along this line of physics, of metaphysics and supernatural, having rules or having to follow rules that are within physics, some we don't know, some we do know. In this case, objects that are aported, Whereas as the old definition would go, uh, objects that are sometimes produced by psychic mediums during a seance, uh, you know, to show that uh, they're getting objects from beyond, from the old French port to actually, I think, physically just literally move things. Things are, would show up, but with no means of a physical contact, like they just appear or they disappear. So in this case, yes, pens, small objects. And what was strange about them is that they seem singed or melted. So they would find the remote control later at the sally house or a pen like a plastic pen but it seemed burned a little bit melted burned singed and of course fire had a lot to do with the sally house if you remember like fires were burning flames starting near tony himself there's a lot to do with fire and flames a flower i think uh, that was plastic just kind of lit up spontaneously and, and started burning uh, in the nursery
1: man so did the windowsill and the
0: wall in there Exactly. So what Scott's talking about here is that uh, two things. First of all, the strings holding the beer together, uh, the beer bottles. Secondly, now what's happened is that Ken wanted to show a picture that he cut out of a magazine and show it to Lucas saying like, well, this is our horseless carriage. I'm particularly fond of this model. And Lucas not knowing what that is saying like, well, that's a, it's a kind of a silly idea that is no horse. (laughs) It's not going to go very far if you have to keep pushing it. Right. But He seems to have taken it with him and possessed it and looked at him. And in the transfer, how it was described by Ken is when they got the photo back, it was very brittle and almost crumbled in their hands and was singed around the edges.
1: He also said, by the way, and I just noticed, I overlooked this the first time I read the book, but when I was looking that back up a few minutes ago, he also said that he would put it in his book, which Mm -hmm. begs the question, does he have his own copy of it now? Did it duplicate
0: itself across the two time periods or did he sketch a picture of it? that he would put in his book? I think we're talking timeline, time travel duplication here. It now exists in two different places at once. And the one that came back to Ken was exposed to a phenomenon, which I'm going to talk about as soon as Rich uh, gets his comment in.
2: Well, I was just going to say, does that mean that Lucas's book was written, but not in our timeline? Mm -hmm. So the very act of writing it places it outside of our timeline, and we will never have the satisfaction of seeing it. Now you blew one of my conclusion (laughs) things. I will say (laughs) that. Thyself. Right.
0: The book is real, but <laughs> it's in a yeah. different timeline. We didn't get to see it. Goodly fellows, please pause thyselves for this next little snippet here, because uh, I just want to make a comment about this as a ghost hunting type of uh, phenomenon, okay? And I want to finish that about the singeing. Before we get to the multiple timelines and the bootstrap time travel, it just... Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's just like, this is so meaty, a a book that it touches all these things, but just talking about their experiences so far, and it kind of, as we get close to uh, the end of part one here, what's going on with them as far as an experience goes? If we just look at it as them getting visited by spirits and ghosts, well, one, uh, a little bit of paranormal apathy that Scott touched on. Ken is saying like, It's so dreary here. We're cooped up in this house. We're getting tired of teaching. He's tired and dreary and exhausted from a summer of uh, refurbishing uh, the, the cottage and now having to teach and it's gray and rainy. And now this weird thing's happening, and they want to research it. Uh, Deb seems to be more excited, and he's just, they're at the library, and he's just like, let's just go home and read about something else.
1: I actually marked something on page 75 about the apathy. You're right. Deb was more interested in the beginning, but the, and she continued to be more interested. Eventually, it got to be a drain for her as well. But here's, mm-hmm. here's something early on, and something I don't think we've mentioned yet. She was having dreams where she was fairly convinced she was visiting Lucas in person. Yeah. And so this is going on, but only when she's asleep. And there's this one section here where Ken writes on page 75 of the vertical plane. Last night, Debbie dreamt that she saw Lucas fleetingly standing in the cottage kitchen. The image of him, of his expression as he saw her, was remarkably clear in her mind. It was then that she remembered something more of the circumstances. She had been quite soundly asleep in front of the fire and had woken only in order to visit the bathroom or at least it felt as if she had awoken. As she opened the door to the kitchen, there before her was Lucas. In a moment, he was gone. Incredibly, she continued on her errand, returning cautiously through the kitchen and eventually back to the couch and to sleep. Her recollection of it is quite distinct. She felt perhaps that she was getting too tense, that she was hallucinating. It unsettled her greatly as we talked it through for hours. She said she'd keep a note of any similar dreams but only for me to see. I told her she wasn't crazy. Mm-hmm. That's a textbook astonishing legends observation is, mm-hmm. you know, the, the person wakes up or at least thinks they waked up or did they dream they wake? Whatever. They walk through to see the ghost. Oh, it's a ghost. I got to pee. They go to the bathroom. <laughs> they go back to sleep. <laughs> yeah. Everybody goes back to sleep. The aliens just took what they did. What they poked, they prodded me. They took pictures mm-hmm. of me. They took a, a patch of skin. They put a thing on me. I'm going back to bed.
2: What we're hearing is that Deb is central to these events. Uh, They did not happen before she was there. Her presence seems to be required in a certain way. And she's the only one who seems to have a psychic connection to Lucas in his own timeline. Now, let's not forget, what's another (laughs) one of our key aspects of any poltergeist case? Young women. Oh, yes. She's 19.
1: Yeah, she's 19. She's
2: 19.
0: Yes, yes.
1: Okay, so that brings me to my next observation here. This this mm-hmm. fits in line. This will keep us on track, I promise. This is a letter that Lucas sent through the computer in a message to Deb. All right. And this reminds me, there's a meme. I remember one one of the, the funniest version of it is Leonardo DiCaprio. I don't know where he is, but he's walking down the street and he's like, he's got his arms way up. <laughs> and it always says, Swiggity swooty, I'm coming for that booty.
0: Oh, dear. Yes. Uh. This
1: is what's happening with Lucas right here. Listen to this letter that he writes to Deb, because he's trying to mack on Ken's lady here. Deb, sweetest of all creatures, please do not be so upset, for it overwhelms me with sorrow that you think I do not wish to speak with you. They just had a thing where she was thinking that, apparently. From the first time I saw you, I was choked by my own breath, for although your fashion is unknown, I must say I was full of melancholy. I think it would be quite wise not to think of such conversation with you and ignore my feelings of love. Ken is a good man who I also love. Do not show this to Ken and say no more on this matter. My (laughs) foolish love to you, maid, which is what he called her maid, Lucas. (laughs) This dude is coming across 400 years to wreck Ken's
2: relationship. <laughs> I just feel lucky that we got to hear Scott's sexy voice. <laughs> this is Every what M gets all the time, Yeah, yeah. is it... this level of <laughs> that low growl. Yeah, that, oh, right. Man, Deb, I, sweetest I, I of all, all creatures. creatures. Okay. I, well, I think we should it, just do – can we just do like a separate audio file of Scott reading – these sexy mash notes from 400 years ago sent to... I, I think Lucas so,
0: but only as a Patreon offering to, to drive more traffic there, I think. That's, oh my uh, God, that's you guys
2: will make so much money. Oh my God.
0: <laughs> I don't know. I also wanted to just say, that's another character from the series Ghosts. <laughs> Thomas Thorne, who is this Regency-era poet and a, a romantic, uh, played by the terrific Matthew Bainton, He's a ghost who's forlorn over the the young, now mistress of the house, Alison Cooper, played by Charlotte Ritchie. And so he's always composing um, love sonnets and uh, trying to woo her, and she doesn't want anything to do with it, uh, but he, he doesn't stop him. So again, these are kind of uh, tropes, and I don't know if uh, you know the writers of Ghosts picked up on the book or how that came about, but there is also... Emotional energy, which is another part of the paranormal aspect or laundry list that I made up here of what's going on here. So, what we have here going on, as far as a typical ghost haunting scenario at the onset, paranormal apathy. Here's the other thing about the sandstone blocks when they're doing the renovation. What Ken noticed is that the poltergeist stacking seemed to happen in a specific spot that was in the kitchen near these sandstone blocks. Also, some of those blocks had been removed during the renovation uh, by the workmen and placed in another area, and it had something to do with the location of those blocks and the proximity of the computer in the kitchen, uh, because it would only happen a certain spot. We'll get verification later that that, uh, according to some higher powers, may be an actual thing, that that's necessary. The location is very important about where the computer is, And, and the sandstone, as we know, and the stone tape theory and, and the energy that's trapped in buildings. We next get to emotional energy. There's a lot of, uh, I guess, low-level depression and ennui and and angst and, and fear, anxiety. Lucas seems like a fun guy, but Ken and Deb don't want him showing up at the foot of the bed. You're invading someone's space, much as... Ken and Deb are invading Lucas's space. That's the first thing that he said. It's like, you know, uh, it is, you've done me a, uh, I can't remember the exact word, but basically like uh, a bribe. It's like, you've done me a, a bad service stealing my house, you two. But then later he says like, you're goodly fellows. Your lady is fair. Uh, you can stay as long as you want.
2: But he still thinks it's his house. Um, are you suggesting that there's some sort of a supernatural threes company at work here? Absolutely. In fact, there's even a, an,
0: omnid, an omnipresent, an omniscient, omnipotent Mr. Furley as well. <laughs> oh, Jack, you can't uh, What are you doing? You can't bring pets in here. To wow. me, not to give anything away, it's just as goofy when I read it later on. It's scary. It's disturbing. The messages that start to develop later on and possibly from whom. But I will say, though, when I got done to it, it's just like, what a goofball. What a... <laughs> What a dork this person is on the other side, whatever it is. That's another fun element. But right now, what we have is a classic haunting, the affectation of emotional energy, uh, sour moods, like I said, anxiety and fear, all those things that, that happen in a haunted location uh, where people are like, ah, the mood's bad here. It's just like gloomy. I want to get out of here. I don't know why. The very first thing that we saw, footprints, and I didn't realize this until later, six toed footprints going up the wall, tiny ones. This is a bit of a interdimensional tesseract. You have uh, spaces formed around a 3D space. A tesseract is a, it's a 4D analog of a 3D cube. So it's just basically an extension of space around a cube instead of having flat sides, six flat sides of a cube, Imagine if those flat sides were now made out of other cubes, and now you have a, a, a eight-dimensional representation, a visual representation. That's essentially what a mathematical concept of a tesseract is. What's happening is that this cottage is something like that, and that I proposed this idea when I first read this passage to Scott. It's like they're seeing footprints up the wall. And of course, naturally, we think in 3D that some little prankster put on an extra digit and uh, dirty their footprints on the concrete dust and then rested their feet on the wall near the heater that makes sense except the walking goes all the way to the ceiling who's doing this as a prank that's kind of funny right Uh, But it's annoying. We have to paint over this. Which, by the way, they did. And then they came back in in a different place. Yes. So somebody was continuing to walk up the wall. But here's my point. It's all the perspective of these different players. That's our perspective as 3D human beings who occupy physical space in a cottage. Someone's walking up the wall. But what if this six-toed small being, to them, they were walking on the floor? And what I mean is that that wall was not a wall as they knew it, that wall was their floor in their dimension in space. They were just walking. Their footprints that they're leaving happen to be along that surface that go up the wall. But it's not as if they thought they were walking up the wall to the corner of the ceiling. They were just walking around in their dimension. And there's an overlay. There's a dimensional overlay of, could be a spirit. It could be, who knows, another entity. Could be just a regular person. In that timeline, people have six six toes. toes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And the and barefoot, yeah, and and like a small size five (laughs) and tiny, so yeah, and tiny because it's obviously that doesn't sound like okay. uh, Well, I
1: think we should go back to the top of that sentence and lop off the regular person part. (laughs)
0: Uh, uh, the, possibly. If it's she a totally was first...
1: normal person. They're just tiny and they have six toes and they're <laughs> they barefoot. Six toes.
0: Oh, and they walk on the wall. It's not the wall for them, yeah. uh, but it's another different space. Now there's great security cam footage of a barmaid uh, years ago at a very old English pub, and it looks like her spirit is wiping the tables down. She's still working. That's another thing. Yeah, people just still keep, continue to work. And then when she's done, she flies through the wall off to the next table, off to the next section. Yeah. Uh, in this case, though, there's other things going around in this space, like now it's a portal of some kind, all this kind of activity. There's a time travel aspect of clues being left from different times and people trying to pass things between each other. Uh, there's the poltergeist activity. Again, that could be part of a haunting and specifically with young Debbie around. And all these things seem to line up with a, with a haunting or a haunted place, right? However, in this story, what starts to happen is that it becomes less like a paranormal ghost story and more like sci-fi. Instead of just a haunting with poltergeist activity and ghosts of the past and spirits and, uh, and, and phantom footprints, you start to see more elements of science or pseudoscience. But it's not fakery and pseudoscience from uh, some bozo here on Earth. Apparently, these people actually know their stuff because they're able to send us messages from beyond in a place that we have no concept of, that they tell us we can't even understand. And obviously, they have some skill. You have a, a Bill and Ted's element here where uh, ordinary people are being exposed to something strange, and they're going about it as best they can to figure out what's happening. You have a uh, you know the aspect is this could be all a hoax but nobody's coming forward there's a big group of people all experiencing this stuff the other thing is that people are seeing poltergeist activity in front of them if this was a hoax being portrayed that's the hardest one to get past uh, as part of this experience and that sure maybe a somebody who's a whiz with computers just happens to know uh, which computer BBC computer that Ken is going to take home for that weekend.
1: Which they don't, because Ken makes it clear that he doesn't pick one. It's almost a random choice when he goes to check one out and take it
0: home. Right. So somebody just rigged all the you know, the, the 14, the 12, 14 computers that are in the in the maths lab so he can control whichever one that Ken takes home and pop up messages. Also has to be a student of Middle English in a particular dialect of that period also uh, is able to sneak in and out of the house with people there and be undetected for nearly a year. All the stuff's going on, but as we progress here, there's another layer to the tesseract, which, by the way, is not just a time and a dimensional and a supernatural tesseract, it's a spiritual tesseract, and it's a tesseract of ambiguity and truth. Now we have extra additional sides to this three-dimensional cube that we cannot see and it muddies the waters of truth, and it adds ambiguity, and now we, we further don't know what to make of all this, because now it's blowing our mind in the same way that it's very hard for us as humans to imagine something like a fourth or fifth dimensional construct, because we only see three dimensions. That's what we were familiar with. I can't see time. I can see the effects of time, I can imagine what happens, but it's hard to wrap our heads around that. Now it's being introduced to us and also possibly from a higher intelligence. It becomes uh, even more mind-blowing and fascinating and also exhausting for everyone involved. And in conclusion, thy goodly friends, one last thing I want to say that's, uh, it verges into uh, or from the ghost hunting aspect of this to sci-fi, I believe, keeping in that theme. We asked our good friends, Jill and Roger, they're, they're both very knowledgeable, experienced, uh, skilled paranormal investigators. Uh, and I remember us talking about things being singed in this transference between uh, one realm to the other. It doesn't happen all the time. It's not a steadfast rule where everything that gets aported ends up melted. But sometimes they do. So I asked them, what was that kind of a, a personal theory, I think, of Roger's? And uh, Jill was able to express it pretty well because they're, uh, uh, they both have uh, science backgrounds. This was Roger's response. So he talks about a case where they went to investigate a family having uh, a paranormal activity in their house. They showed them items that they claimed had been aported and melted. And Roger even says, uh, I think it was a TV remote. Uh, He also says uh, that Bigelow, Robert Bigelow had investigated this case apparently. So here's a hypothesis I think both of them were working on about this weird singeing or melting. So there's a theory that uh, when a portal opens uh, as to a port, an object, or even for paranormal activity to occur, a blast of gamma ray energy escapes. It doesn't make the item radioactive but they had heard anecdotes of investigators getting cancer or having all their film ruined during investigation. So I, I believe it was Roger who bought a <laughs> radiation detector for $900 just to see what was going on. Of course, the clicking makes it crazy. It ruins your EVPs. And uh, what you really need is one of those uh, radiation detectors. But that's one of the ideas is that when a portal opens, there's a burst of energy that comes through. And as we'll see, this consciousness from the other side may have some ideas about this transference of energy and tachyons and how things can travel faster than the speed of light by thought or electricity. So there are some interesting ideas going on here because you see the physical effects of it. Something Roger said um, something about Jill's ideas about the phenomenon, uh, he says it's his estimation that it has to do with the type of spirit as much as the phenomenon. One case they talk about is uh, there was something that seemed to be a dark entity. So an avocado was set out on the on the table while the phone call was being made, and Quartz uh, should funnel heat away. That's why fudge makers will use it to diffuse the heat, right? Also, Quartz uh, picks up radio signals. When they got off the phone, uh, this avocado looked like it had been put in the microwave. It had just superheated for, <laughs> for a bit, so... It should have made the avocado colder. Instead, it heated it up. So you do wonder about the type of, let's say, character that's on the other side fiddling with things if they have different powers. And when they demonstrate these powers, are they showing off? Is it a byproduct of them showing up? When a portal opens up, is this just a phenomenon that happens? There are some ideas about the poltergeist activity being a byproduct of this interdimensional communication, if you will.
2: My question is, Forrest, do you make fudge using avocado? No, no, no. Those were two separate things, Rich. Oh, I'm sorry. I. You can. Be my
0: guest. Uh, the idea, though, is that a phone call was being made. The topic of the discussion was a particularly dark uh, entity, you could say. The avocado was set on the quartz counter, which should be cool, which should draw heat away. Uh, oh. Yet it had the opposite effect. Uh, but as we know, like the sandstone blocks, the red sandstone blocks, which Lucas said, you know, it was a good, goodly uh, cottage built upon sturdy red sandstone. That proved to be true. Uh, he knew about that. Some of that sandstone was there. So, as we know, sandstone, limestone, porous stone,
2: but also quartz. Uh, there's a lot of paranormal activity reported. So, but what you're saying is don't talk about the supernatural near avocados.
0: Make the sandwich after. I didn't understand
1: how the quartz played into the fudge. Like I've got my grandmother's fudge oh, recipe. I've made it a billion okay. times. There's no call for quartz. Are you saying you put a stone in the, a quartz stone in the fudge? I didn't know. Well, uh, no, I know what, what I'm saying. saying. If, you, if
2: you want to cook an avocado, talk about the supernatural near it, but make sure there's no quartz to draw the heat away because I think this is like a guacamole recipe. Okay, yeah. No, okay. no.
0: I, I, boy, this I failed at this miserably. What <laughs> the story is
1: is that I could I've, I I pictured someone dropping quartz stones in a bat of fudge and then the, yeah. and there's a nearby avocado. I'm not sure.
0: You must have watched both of you a cable show where somebody's making uh, like caramel or candy, right? And they they use the stone to roll it out. They scoop sure. it up. Yeah. That's the idea. Is that the stone has a purpose and that it it cools the material? It draws the it's a heat sink. It draws the heat away.
2: But these recipes will be available in the show notes, right? No, no. (laughs) Hey, I'll tell you what,
1: Rich, since you brought that up, I will tell you what. I have an amazing, amazing guacamole recipe. It is unbelievable. It's It's delicious (laughs) and wonderful forced what he wants to put it down it's certainly no it's, it's, no, it's good it's good it's yeah. no he's the only person that says that everybody i know that i've made it for loves <laughs> it i've everyone's asked me for it i will put it in the show notes it's not mine it came from a sous yeah. chef in new york city and, and it involves uh, like you make a whole uh. thing you make special spices you heat up some coriander yourself you roast the coriander and do all that and you put that in a pepper grinder you keep that for the whole summer or whatever and then you make the guacamole sort of traditional way but then you put this stuff in and it goes to a whole new level
2: that sounds amazing. That sounds like something to be served at the astonishing legends Christmas party.
1: Uh, it does, doesn't oh. it? And I, you should make a fun video of me making it, like a tabletop video. That would be amazing. in costume. Yeah, that I would see. Yeah, the Grim Reaper makes
0: guacamole. Yeah, the, no, the only <laughs> <laughs> the only recipe I was going to include was one that was delivered to us by Lucas, and I looked it up because, again, part of the twee. Was that he? Uh, he was talking about his favorite foods, and he said, Uh, oh, my, my favorite food is uh, pumpus, uh, pumps or pumpus spelled p-u-m-p-e-s. I looked this up, it's actually a medieval dish, and he actually says, Like, well, I don't know how to make it, but my lady does, and she'll tell you how to do it. Which is, uh, you boil pork until tender, you mince oh, yes. it, okay, and minced meat. Remember, minced meat pies, mincing is a very big thing around in, in, in Tudor's cooking, you add cloves. You roll it up into a ball. You pour some almond milk in it, blah, 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 blah. And so Lucas says that's his favorite dish, pumpus with pastry and peas, and he follows it up with mead. And it's like, isn't it delicious, he says. And it's like, yeah, I guess so. I, don't, I, I haven't had it. We'll put it on the uh, recipe. We'll let people uh, chime in with their uh, results.
2: Boy, I don't think anybody expected to get recipes on today's episode of Assumption Legends. But you know <laughs> what? You always get a little more... Yeah, for your <laughs> money. For.
0: Yeah, but Rich, whenever you come on, there's always a couple of drink recipes. I know, I'm getting thirsty. Yeah, the aviation. Well, it's getting about that time as we record here, and are going to wrap this up. But that is also part of uh, the nature of the the first messages. To recap, the first message received was a weird kind of a creepy poem, which not threatening, but just people don't like to get that stuff mysteriously on their computer screen. Then it turned into "Dear Diary" from the 1520s from a a pleasant fellow, uh, but... Then it, it turned into, let's period. get it on. Yeah, after that. Then it turned into, uh, yes, Matthew Bainton uh, <laughs> pitching woo to the lady of the house. Uh, yeah. Also, here's the thing. Uh, I know this happens later, but, you know, Deb is 19 at the time. How old was Lucas's girlfriend at the time? Because what I, what I read in the first message was he describes that he did have a wife and sadly, his wife, an unborn child, died in the, the plague.
1: Right. And then he had a new lady friend. Her name is Catherine, and she was 14.
2: Deb is 19. I, I think in the book, Ken Webster is about 25, and Lucas is maybe 439. Yeah, we
1: don't know. We have, we yeah. never figured out Ken's age, but yeah, yeah, very young. But Catherine, in the 1500s, Lucas's lady friend was 14, which I think is probably was not necessarily no. unusual for the 1500s, but so- this is the section that we, we were referring to off the record as the party line section, or I, I like to say another country heard from. They come back into the house, and there's a message there from Lucas. And uh, part of the message we're going to say for part two, because it'd be confusing to share it now, as though you thought we would leave out things that mm. were confusing. But here's the other part of the message, where it, it just it's just uh, two sentences. It says, you said your time is 1985. I thought you were also from... 2109 like your friend who brought the box of lights pray question mark meaning it's this is a question so what's happened now is ken and deb they're coming home and there's a message here that makes it clear that he's been talking to somebody else and he thinks that that other person doesn't live in the year 1985 but lives in the year 2109 so of course debbie and ken are curious who is this 2109? Is there somebody else on the phone with us? Is there somebody else listening to these communications? And Ken... Who I love, I love that he's a creative person, an artist, because these a lot of my friends are this type of people. He has a fairly good sense of humor, and he's he's just like I decided to go a bit Star Trek with my message, and so <laughs> he wrote into the computer. He went and got. By the way, every time one of these messages is coming, the computer's going away and coming back. It goes back to the school. They pick up another one. Goes back. It's not just sitting in their house. It's not even his computer. They're like checking it out like you would a library book. And mm-hmm. lots of times, it's a different computer. So he puts in this message, and it says. Calling 2109, that was his reference to Star Trek. And then he wrote a question here for Lucas, too. It was a question about a poem that had uh, that had come to them earlier. And what happened was he got a response that seemed like it was an answer about the poem, but then there was another part of the message. And he says here, uh, from the same source, we re- too received a few words. Words that were far more unsettling than anything received so far, because however we looked at it, we decided we were being used. Here is that message, the first message from 2109. This is exactly as it was written, by the way. This is not translated. This is how it was written. So the Old English is gone. Ken, Deb, Peter, we are sorry that we can give you only two choices. Choices is misspelled, by the way, spelled with an S instead of a C in the second position there. Number one, that you either have your predicament explained in such a non-rhyme way that you may have instant understanding, but cause what should not be to happen. Or two, try to understand... That you three have a purpose that shall in your lifetime changes the face of history. We, 2109, must not affect your thoughts directly, but give you some sort of guidance that will allow room for your own destiny. All we can say is that we are all part of the same God, whatever he, it, question mark, is. <laughs> That's going to wrap up part one of our two-part series on the vertical plane. A very special thanks to our returning guest and friend, screen and television writer
0: and producer, Richard Haddam. We'll be back in two weeks with part two. Please remember to support our sponsors. They help keep the show free and the lights on in Blanket Fortiana. Special thanks to John Bolin.
2: Galaxy wide in perpetuity. Hi, I'm Holly. This is how to spell my name, H-O-L-L-Y. Casey Kohler. Steve Holloway.
1: Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees Wendell and co produced by Tess
0: Feifel, who is also our head of research. Our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane, and our sound design and additional composing is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to the Astonishing Research Corps. But most importantly, we want to thank you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can also support the show at
1: patreon.com/astonishinglegends, where patrons have access to additional bonus content. No part of this show may be reproduced anywhere without permission. Copyright Astonishing Legends
0: Productions. Good night.